Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Ultra Boy and Booster Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, Hedrick and Arisia and Woody Weeks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC Who's Who. Hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe, a proud member of the Fire and Water family of podcasts. I'm one of your hosts, the Irredeemable Shag from FirestormFan.com. Along with me is my co-host, the esteemed Rob Kelly from AquamanShrine.com. Hello, Rob. Good evening, Shag. I know you're super, super excited about this particular issue of Who's Who. I, I can't imagine whatever you might mean. <laughs> We've, we're peaking. <laughs> After this one, there's nothing for us to get excited about. Well, let's be fair. All right, folks. <laughs> uh, just a you know, just a sneak peek ahead. This does happen to be the F issue of Who's Who, so there may be a little fiery character that might be worth talking about. But after this, more than I one, mean, actually. That's true. After this, Rob, let's be realistic, though. I mean, everyone knows that the issue everyone's waiting for is the S issue. I mean, it's, it probably DC's you know marquee characters in the S issue. They're it, they have you know an entire comic book empire built around Slipknot. Yeah, yes, that's right. <laughs> so everyone's waiting for that. So let's be, let's be honest. I mean, that's more important than this issue. But yes, folks, we are back to cover Who's Who, the definitive directory of the DC universe, and we are covering volume number eight. That's V I I I. Hi. I noticed that pause there. <laughs> for you, robust, numerally challenged people like myself, apparently, uh, it's the October 1985 issue. And uh, it actually hit the stands on July 18th, 1985. And uh, that may become important as we discuss this. So so uh, just to give you a little bit of history on the Who's Who series, it is a 20, the, the, this particular incarnation. It's a 26-issue series that was celebrating the 50th anniversary of DC Comics, ran parallel to, to Crisis on Infinite Earths. Um, it's an al- obviously an alphabetical listing, as we said, recovering the Fs this time. And one of the neat things in this is there's absolutely no advertisements. I, I talk about that every episode, and I can't get over it every time I flip through this. A zillion words, no advertising. Hard to believe. You think they charge per word. Anyway, uh, our goal is that you guys don't have to have this who's who issue in front of you. If you're able to uh, find your copy amongst all your long boxes, definitely grab it because it will be worth going through it with us as we talk about the art and talk about some of the weird quirks in some of the entries. But if you don't have it, that's okay, because we're going to post probably 10 to 11 entries over on our Tumblr site. Rob, what's that Tumblr site? Uh, it's fireandwaterpodcast.tumblr.com. There you go. So, uh, And then we'll get into this in just a second as we get going. Now, I, Rob, i got a quick story i got to tell. Now, if, if any of you all are regular listeners of Fire and Water Podcast as well, and you should I apologize. Be. And you should be, yeah. You're going to hear this story for a second time, but that's okay. It's worth it. I recently went to a Doctor Who convention in Los Angeles, Outpost Gallifrey. Don't. Don't. I have seen the raging emails at you about bashing Doctor Who, so you better – and Doctor Who fans. So anyway, so one of the guests happened to be Mr. Marv Wolfman. And if any of you are longtime followers of Who's Who, you know Mr. Marv Wolfman. It was a contributing writer and consulting editor on the series. And I got a chance to go up and meet him. Now, Len Wein was supposed to be there too, but apparently Len either didn't show or didn't show during the signing. So anyway, I go up and talk to Marv, and uh, I go up and talk to Marv, and 
I, I had him sign my who's who number one, which I was pretty excited about. And I told him, I said, hey, I don't know if you have heard or not, but um, me and a buddy of mine are doing a who's who podcast. And what's the very first thing he said, Rob? <laughs> Why? <laughs> Actually, it was, what a waste of time. <laughs> I, I, I knew the answer. I wanted you to say it. So. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, he said, what a waste of time, which about dropped me to the floor in, <laughs> in laughter and giggles. It just <laughs> cracked me up. Now, he finished it up by saying, you know, what a waste of time. Now that all the histories have been wiped out by the new 52, fair statement, but I think I like his other answer better. <laughs> reminiscent of that time that Shatner hosted Saturday Night Live. Yes, right. Get a life. I mean, that would have been that would have been the the, the icing on the cake if if uh, he had said that to me. Like, get out of your parents' basement. <laughs> well, he did. The line was, "You turned a, a little uh, enjoyable job I did as a lark uh, for a few years into a colossal waste of time." That was the line. <laughs> yeah. Now, for the record, I do not live in my parents' basement. By the way. So, all right. Uh, well, we're going to talk about this issue. the 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 marquee character, as shocking as it may seem, is not Firestorm. No. On this, it is the Flash, specifically the Silver Age Barry Allen Flash. And as all Who's Who comics are, you know, if once you open the the full, I guess it's not. You don't call it gatefold. You just call it a uh, wraparound. Thank you, wraparound cover. Uh, on the right-hand side, you have the listing of everyone alphabetically and the marquee characters, and, you know, Flash is there. So once you open it up, though, it's a it's a very nice cover by Paris Cullens and Dick Giordano. And you've got, you know, it's a jam pose, as it always is, has all the characters appearing in one way or another, and some of them interacting, and some of the some of the stuff that's going on is sort of, like, ridiculous, like would never happen, like when Fisherman has hooked the gambler and is reeling him in. Yes. <laughs> but it makes for a great sort of party and gives you a sense of what's going on here. Now... Rob, is there, what, what are some of the things on the cover that stand out to you that you like the most? Uh, well, the thing that the, – the, the number one thing that jumps out at me the most with the Paris Collins covers is that he tended to try and make these characters all interact in the same shot as if they really were all in the same room together. The previous covers were by Perez. He really didn't bother with that. You know, he – like Batman. You know, Batman was the main image, of course, on Volume 2. Batman is like ten times the size of a yeah. couple other characters that are behind him. So it's like size-wise, it doesn't make any sense, or you have some character sort of standing on nothing. Here, Paris Collins tries a little more to make everybody um, in perspective with each other, which is why, comparatively, The Flash, uh, who is, as, as you just said, that was the main character of this book, like he's not that big on the cover. Right. You know, like you look back at who's your number one, Aquaman is huge on the cover, Batman is huge, and as... By the time Paris Collins did it, you know, he's making – trying to make it a little more realistic. So therefore the Flash kind of blends in a little more with everybody else as opposed to, you know, him being as big as he probably could have been. Yeah. Now, and, and I'm going to – in a second I'm going to talk about the things I love about the cover. But I will say you're, you're absolutely right. And I think also one of the things that this cover sort of suffers from is that the characters aren't actually interacting as much as they would on, let's say, a Perez cover. Like in the Perez cover, almost every character is doing something with another character. There's some little vignette in a corner. You're like, oh, that's going on over there. And here, they're all just kind of in the same room. Now, there is some interaction. Like, I'll, I'll talk about one of my favorite features is dead square in the middle of the, com- the comic is a big circle of fire. And being the F issue, there's a lot of fire characters. Firebrand is uh, the female firebrand from All-Star Squadron is sort of generating this giant circle and swimming around in, in the fiery circle is, uh, what is that, Firebug? Firebug, Firejade. 
Sparkler. Fire Lad. Fire Lad. And then flying through the middle is Firestorm and Firehawk, which is great. And I like that the older Fire brand is kind of giving her the thumbs up. Yeah. That's that's a cute little thing. He's like, hey, look look at the nice job she's doing. Yeah. Like, I don't think it's a thumbs up. I think it's more like, hey, check out my sister. She rocks. (laughs) That's kind of how I see that. And uh, running out of the circle, you get on the right-hand side, you get the Barry Allen flash. And on the left-hand side, you get the Jake Garrick flash. I do like how Jay's doing sort of like the forehead, like, uh, or the the salute over to Barry. I like that. That's nice. Then you get, um, you know, there's there's a lot of other characters, like like Pharaoh Lad's a perfect example. He's there, but he's just kind of floating. He's not really doing anything. You know, Fiddler's there. He's sitting on somebody. Well, it looks like Pharaoh Lad's trying to, is going after Galactic. What is it? Galactic Golem. Although those two characters don't have anything to do with each other, so maybe not. No, they're both bald, sort of. Uh, (laughs) One of the neat things along the bottom is you've got um, Mayflower from the Force of July has grown flora. um, Flora? Is that the right? Yeah. All all over the bottom of the page, and Floronic Man is in the front of it. So, like, if you don't think about it at first, you think that Floronic Man's the one who's responsible, and in reality, it's Mayflower, which is kind of cool. I never thought of that before. Yep. I, the fisherman hooking gambler really does boggle the mind. I don't really get that. So I guess that's a purple thing. <laughs> Maybe. And, and you've got, like, uh, Fury is bending some steel, but she's not really interacting with anyone. She's just there doing it. You know, you get uh, Felicity is just chilling out in the flora. you got the, the female Furies in the background there. One of the things I found kind of funny is that the Forgotten Heroes, or not the Forgotten Heroes, I'm sorry, the Forgotten Villains are sort of tucked away in the back corner, almost almost as if they're forgotten. <laughs> Crack me up. And I do like Forager is saving fire hair. I thought that was That's nice. very nice. And also, if you're, anytime you ever have a giant guy, you will have other characters climbing on the giant guy. That's just that is absolutely – you've got two that. examples of that in right, this one. Right, right. Uh, and I can't remember either one of these characters' names because they're both like on teams. Faceless, <laughs> I think it's Faceless Hunter is the one guy. I, I right? think you're right. The one that Gargoax is sitting on and the, yeah, yeah. the Fiddler. Yeah. And, you know, I, th- I think one of the things this cover kind of suffered from was, like, and this is my own personal bias, like, some of my favorite characters, and I honestly I'm not talking about Firestorm and Firehawk this time, didn't make the cover, and some less interesting characters did. Like, I think Faceless Hunter and Gargawax, I could do without. Just not interesting to me at all. But Forager's pretty cool, Jay Garrick's pretty cool, Fisherman's ridiculous but still interesting, you know, fire. I, I firebrand the girls pretty cool. You know, like all of them could have been on the the, the right hand panel cover. I think it would have been you know a better selling point. But that's just me. You do get the kind of thing we've talked about recently with Paris Collins and Dick Giordano, where the foreground characters are very detailed and the background characters start to get a little looser. Yeah, yeah. The, the inks on them. So, which is unfortunate because I think this this cover could have been a little more. You know, I don't know. Uh, little popped a little more but in general it's nice and i think paris does a very good job and, it, and normally I, I i talk about how you can always tell a paris collins drawing by the eyes this issue you totally can't in fact for the longest time i thought this cover was by perez simply because um you know barry allen flash just looks so perez like on the cover yeah a little bit i would say that i actually had to look it up this issue before we started to, to double mm-hmm. check that it was paris collins the, the the real reason I remember is that I actually posted this to Firestorm fans shortly after I started the site and said it was by George Perez and Oops. got corrected. And got corrected. <laughs> well, uh, I guess we're going to go ahead and go open this up and 
here we go, folks. This is this is this is this is a big thing here. The letters page. This is probably uh, one of the more important letter pages to talk about in the entire series. Would you say, Rob? It's the most impressive letters page in the history of comic book. That's all I'll say. It is. I mean, I don't think I've ever read a letters page this uh, effective before. All right, folks, brace yourself. The letters page, uh, you know, the letters column section takes up about two-thirds of the page. It's got the Who's Who logo and then absolutely nothing else. <laughs> it is a giant white block of space. I mean, uh, uh, beneath that, you get all the Who's Who credits and pronunciation glossary and the indicia, but it's just literally three columns of white space. Like, they forgot to insert the text or no one had time to write it. It's I don't a, know what. It's a good place to take notes. Right. I mean, <laughs> it's perplexing as hell. It's like, what the hell happened here? You know, maybe they answer it in a subsequent letter page. I don't know. Brenda Pope, uh, proofreader, just said, I've had enough. That's it. Right. <laughs> Too many words. <laughs> this is where she finally cracked. Next issue, it'll be a different proofreader. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so utterly bizarre. Anyway. You know, I have to, just been saying, the thing about Brenda Pope, I am sure. I have no idea if, if Miss Pope is still with DC Comics. I would bet that she isn't just because most of the people that you're look, whose names you're seeing here are not still with DC Comics. But it's like – so I think that wherever she is, she's working at some other company. She has absolutely no idea that there's two knuckleheads that are talking about her once every six weeks or so. I'm sure that would never occur to her. <laughs> All right. I, uh, I'm looking people up now. <laughs> <laughs> she apparently made it up on – Boosterific one time? Our buddy who runs the Booster Gold website. Is this really the time to do okay, all searching right, all right, while we're right. recording? It, I'm, I'm, well, we're trying to get into the fifth hour. You know, we're heading into our five-hour shows that these these things tend to be. Easily distracted. Yeah, sorry. Come on, Jack. All right. Uh, this is actually a uh, a fun issue. This is this one's kind of interesting. I mean, there are um, lots and lots of teams in this issue. I don't know if you noticed that, but there's tons of teams. So you almost get more bang for your buck with this issue simply because there's so many characters in it. So I kind of dig that. Now, as we go through this, folks, just real quick uh, history on who's who. If you, Sorry, you hear me say it every month. If this is your first episode, great. If not, then just this is for you. In the foreground, you get your character in full color uh, in, with a logo, a specialized logo just for them. In the background, you get a sort of uh, what – well, we just call it the surprint, which is not the right term. Color but hold. Part. Color hold. I think we should officially call it the color hold. I can't. I have to call it surprint oh, now. I'm sorry. Sorry I've done that to you all. It's your word. You screwed I me know. up. I know. I'm sorry. Anyway, in the background is color hold or surprint. It's uh, different images sort of giving background information on the character, but it's all in one color. It's very effective. It's nice. Then you get their personal data, uh, which is like, you know, their name, their occupation, marital status, first appearances, height, weight, all that kind of stuff. You get their history, and then you get their powers and weapons. Now, when you get to a team entry, which we've got a lot of this time, uh, you just get a big block of their history and a nice art piece. So, in fact, our first one is a team entry, and we're going to be talking about the Fatal Five. I love their logo because it just – it makes you want to say the name like that. <laughs> a Fatal Five. So these are Legion of Superheroes villains and are probably, I would say, the most well-known Legion of Superheroes villain. I know there's the Legion of Supervillains, but I, I don't know. When I think Legion, I think Fatal Five. And this is compri comprised of Emerald Empress, Mano, Persuader, Thorok, and Validus. And uh, it's a beautiful art piece by Steve Lytle. You've got uh, the And Bill Ray. Team. And Bill Ray. 
Oh, I'm sorry, and Bill Ray, yes. And the whole team's sort of raging at you, and the Serpent is just crackly Kirby energy in red, which is kind of nice. Now, I know you hate the Legion with a pattern of a thousand burning suns, Rob, so you probably have nothing to add to this whatsoever. I always enjoy I never knew the character, but I enjoyed Validus of a, just a giant monster guy with his brain under a big dome. I, it just That just cracked me up, that design. Well, it, this is going to test my knowledge. Um, somebody's going to tell me I'm wrong, because this is totally off the cuff, guys. But I want to say Validus is maybe Lightning Lad... And Saturn Girl's child that has been kidnapped and mutated? Really? I think. Well, we'll get to that. We'll, he gets his own listing, so. Well, it's a letter V. That's like in, six in, years from yeah, now. Yeah, six years from now, we'll know whether we're right or not. <laughs> well, I'm sure we will hear from Anthony Durso and Siskoid before we even finish this uh, podcast. That's, that's correct true. me, so. Um, I, I like in, in the entry, it lists Therok is allegedly deceased. <laughs> yeah, we know what that means. And this last paragraph is awesome, okay? The egos, as well as the evil of the Fatal Five, are so great that the group continues to exist principally in name only, as the members unite only by coincidence or desperate need. <laughs> I guess that means, like, when one character shows up, they still call themselves the Fatal it's Five. It's all a tax dodge. <laughs> <laughs> they have an office somewhere, and you go to it, and there's just a bunch of unanswered mail there. There's nobody actually really there. There's no desks, nothing. It's, a, it's, all, it's all a scam. That's awesome. Now, I, I came into the Legion kind of late in the game, so I didn't read these early adventures of the Fatal Five. Oh, why do you hate I, them? Why do you, why do you hate the Legion? What, what's the matter with you? That was weak. That was weak. Anyway, it's interesting to read here that apparently the Legion is responsible for assembling the Fatal Five. Well, because when the Sun Eater was coming, and it's, I swear you can't read a Legion entry without the Sun Eater being mentioned. Um, when the Sun Eater was coming, they, they gathered together the, uh, these criminals to help them fight the Sun Eater. And I guess that's how the the Fatal Five was formed. Anyway, I just it's nice to see Emerald Empress because uh, we talked about her last month, and um, I just always thought she was sexy as hell. So anyway, that didn't take long. I didn't say she's hot. <laughs> I'm saving that for someone else. Anyway, oh, next page. Moving on. Another team entry. Uh, we get the Fearsome Five, which I always thought <laughs> which, was a little. Which features seven people. <laughs> <laughs> I always wonder when they created the Fearsome Five if it was, like, intentionally supposed to be, like, the modern-day version of the Fatal Five or something. Because, you know, the, the Fatal Five take place in the 30th century. The Fearsome Five take place in the 20th century. It was always like, yeah, the names are a little too, uh, till, too, too similar. I think it's just the alliteration is too hard to piss up. True. Well, Sin- been you know, f- Sinister Six, you know, that kind of thing. Could have been the Fearsome Four then. I don't know. Anyway, oh, sure. so you get a beautiful drawing by... George Perez here, and this features characters of Dr. Light, Gizmo, Jinx, Mammoth, Neutron, Simon, and Shimmer. Now, the Fearsome Five are New Teen Titans villains, and they were organized by Dr. Light, who was continually fired as the leader of the team. <laughs> by the, you know, they were all so nasty to each other, they would just um, you know, usurp each other's power all the time and, and take over. So, I like how this entry, though, has sort of like the entry has itself has a bit of sense of fun. Like it talks about, there's like an a, an irregularly irregularly published newspaper featuring letters, articles, and how-to tips by and for the super criminal element in the continental United States, which is a great oh, idea. Called the Underworld Star. So it just <laughs> that cracked me up. The comics page is horrible though. 
I tell you, it's just trash. Anyway, and then later on, they call Doctor Light a sanitation engineer. So I just—it's nice that like the text actually has a bit of a sense of humor about it. The dumping on him began around this point. Yeah, I mean, he—he he, this was this was the end of Doctor Light being taken seriously. That's for sure. Until later. And, and lucky, on. of course, he never appeared again. So right. <laughs> for those of you who don't know. Rob has this weird blind spot for Identity Crisis Forward. It's not a blind spot. A blind spot indicates I don't see it. I do see it. I pretend it doesn't exist. That's, that's <laughs> different. That's like me for years. I'd go around going, what do you mean there was a third Superman movie? What are you talking right. about? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, uh, now, one of the things I want to point out in the art, I mean, obviously, it's George Perez, guys, so, I mean, you know it's just gorgeous artwork, but I, particularly what stands out to me is the character of Jinx. She is really interesting looking. Um, her her background is I'm vamping till I can find it. <laughs> can't can't find it fast enough. Okay, moving on. Oh, East Indian sorceress. There we go. Um, but the inking around her, you know, it's very thick lines around her, more so than anyone else. And I just think it just makes her really stand out. She looks like a really cool character. Does she get her own listing? I forget. It doesn't say – oh, yeah, it does. It says see Jinx. So, okay, assume, yeah, you know, in theory she does. Now, Neutron? Now, it does say for a brief time, they also included Neutron. I don't remember that at all. And, and he's clearly, you know, an Iron Man character with a diving helmet. I mean, that's what he looks like. He's even got the – now, maybe because Perez came off of Avengers or something is why, but he's got Iron Man's boots and Iron Man's gloves. Yeah, he does. Got, yeah. And he's got the red and yellow color scheme too. Well, that's so, orange. But yeah, it's close. Well, and mine it looks. Well, I guess it's orange. My see, you're looking at a digital aren't you? See, yeah. mine it, it's yeah. I guess because if you compare it to Shimmer's, Shimmer's hair, hair, Shimmer's hair is red. Yeah. She looks like Mrs. Kabapal over there, or the woman who played Mrs. Kabapal in The Simpsons. I don't really remember Shimmer that well either. I guess I need to re. I need well, I need to finish reading my New Teen Titans. I never finished reading she all. She and of them. Mammoth are brother and sister, which is why they're sitting so chummy with with one another. Right, I, and I remember them. I remember them being kind of creepy. I guess you know, the more I think about, it, I remember. But like Mammoth always sticks out in my mind because he hung around longer than her. So, and Simon was just always a really cool character. Just. You know, kind of a creepy, kind of a jerk. This, you know, very, very arrogant the, and intelligent. The second page in a row featuring a character with an exposed brain. <laughs> which, okay. which, you remember from the crisis, really came back to bite Simon in the ass when he tried That's to take true. over the it villains. So. It did, didn't it? So somebody um, start making tally marks for that, would you? So. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, How many different exposed brain characters are we going to see in Who's Who? Exactly. So, first and five, uh, great entry. Uh, really happy to see George Perez again in the pages of Who's Who. He belongs here. Next up, Felicity. Not to be confused with Carrie Russell, folks. This is Felicity from the Omega Men. And here's your moment of zen, uh, Hector. Yes, she's hot. It's drawn by Mr. Dan Spiegel, who was drawing Omega Men. At least, I, Rob, maybe you can help me out. Was he drawing Omega Men? A lot? No, did he didn't he draw it at the... all, actually. Actually? Da, 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 da. If he, if he, if, I don't remember him drawing much Omega Men. If he did, he didn't draw it as a – he wasn't – it wasn't a regular assignment of his. Flip to the last page of this magazine, if mm-hmm. you would, please. Um, the page where it lists upcoming comics. Mm-hmm. There is an Omega Men cover with a very nice Sean McManus cover, but it says by Todd Klein and Dan Spiegel. Okay. And it's about And it's about Felicity. Okay. Right. Well, I'm saying, but he wasn't the regular artist on the book. Right. But he drew an issue at he least. He did. So. Yes, he did. Um, now, um, so being that I think she's hot, and this is a great drawing, 
like, does she qualify as like a furry? I don't know. Well, she's a humanoid cat, just so you guys know. Yeah, I mean, she's, she's, she's wearing... an alien, so, I mean, that's just her race. So it's Right, alien. but she's wearing basically no clothes. I mean, Spiegel uh, really ramped it up. She's not really built like that. Wasn't built like oh, that really? in Omega Man. Yeah, he really kind of, like, went a little <laughs> a little crazy. He, at the time, um, he was drawing Crossfire uh, for uh, Eclipse Comics, which was written by Mark Evanier, uh, one of my favorite books. And Crossfire had... The occasional nudity in it, um, huh? and I think like maybe that he was in that mode a little when he drew this, and just made her like a little more sexualized than even than she was in in um because you see in the in the color hold back there you see her talking to Tigor and she's not wearing the same outfit she's wearing something a little more demure than the one she's wearing in the foreground. Yeah, I mean here she's wearing you know a, a South Beach you know yeah one one piece bathing suit pretty much. Now I wonder you know. To me, the first thing that screamed to me, you know, she's from what, the Vegan system? Is that right? Uh, something like that, yeah. Yeah. To me, what screamed to me was Vegan the Cat Dancer uh, here when I read this, thinking, I wonder if Omaha the Cat Dancer came first before this. Because, I mean, she's a dancer, she's a cat person, comic book, it just, it all lines up a little too nicely there. Hmm, I have no idea. Uh, I think it's kind of interesting they refer to her as a pampered harem slave. <laughs> she was kind of a flibber to gibbet in Omega Men. That's always that's how they wrote her a little bit. Okay. Just kind of like, I, an, yes. You, you get points for using that in a sentence. Thank okay. you. That's one of my favorite words. I love it. So Now, some of Spiegel's art here is just like, again, foreground image is absolutely beautiful. Um, the surprint or color hold of her close-up of her face is absolutely beautiful. But the other two images kind of have me scratch my head. Like Tigor doesn't look quite right. He looks. It's like a dull a pose. They're just sort of standing there. It doesn't. It's well, his, you know. his face looks kind of messed up. Yeah. And, and then what in the hell is that behind the Y? Behind him, I forget. In the background there, I forget the name of this character. But in in Omega Men, they introduced a couple of bounty hunters, and of course, Omega Men was the book that gave us Lobo. Right. Um, and there was another bounty hunter character, and this was that other guy. I just okay. and then he doesn't get a listing in who's who. I, I forget his name. I apologize, everybody, but I forget he was sort of like the other bounty hunter they introduced in the book, and then Lobo was the one that took off. And so this guy's basically like the Dengar to Lobo's. Book yeah, it's <laughs> a nice way to put it. So uh, yeah, and, and if you read the text piece, there's you know a very sad, um, tragic love story between Tigor and Felicity. Her her love for him was not reciprocated, and uh, she was brokenhearted. Felix Faust. This is a great one, folks. It's it's a beautiful, a little more than a half-page drawing of Felix Faust by the master Gil Kane. And I want to say this is this is Gil doing some of his best who's who work right here. You've got Felix in, sort of in the foreground, and he's got his hands outstretched, and he's you know clearly focusing on a spell of some sort. Behind him is Rob. Please insert their names. The Abneg- Well, they're called the Demons Three, also known as Abnegazar, Wrath, and Gast. I could have said Demons 3. It's the other things I can't say because I can't pronounce anything right. But So you got them in the, in the surprint. Uh, you've got a, sh- a famous classic shot of Felix's hands, and his fingertips have been changed into the Justice League from an old <laughs> Justice League issue, which is great. Now, the only thing that's a little odd is um, I mentioned what goes on in the, in the color hold, the surprint. What they're supposed to do is show you a close-up some point in the color hold area of the lead character's face without their mask. 
So like, you know, let's just say it's Batman, for example. You'd have Batman in color in the front, and then in the background you'd have a fairly large size image of Bruce Wayne's face. Well, here you get Felix Faust uh, in the foreground wearing his typical sort of head pe- headdress that he wears. And then you've got the picture of him without his headdress. But it almost looks like it was tacked on like someone reminded Gil to do it. <laughs> yeah, because it's in its own box as opposed to being yeah. composed with the rest of the image, yeah. Everything else is composed so nicely. And then that's just like, oh, forgot that. Eh, 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 squared in. So, you know, great image. I love the kind of 60s-ish or almost 1950s-ish logo, you know, with the shaky letters. It looks nice. Yeah, that is reminiscent of kind of the uh, DC's horror mystery titles of that era when he was created, which was like in 1961, I believe, because he's from Justice League number 10 very early on. Yeah. yeah. Now, I was inspired when I read his entry. It says, as a youth... Felix Faust read the story of how his namesake, Faust, has sold his soul to the devil for supernatural powers. From that moment forward, Felix sought to do the same. So, <laughs> Good plan. I've, I've thought about that now, and I've decided I'm now going to commit my own life to my namesake, and I'm going to try and eat a lot of sandwiches and solve crimes with a Great Dane. So <laughs> this, will be my, this will be my last podcast. I, I have a future ahead of me in a van. So thanks, folks. We all know how we like redheads. That's true, brother. That you're, you're speaking the truth. <laughs> Felix Faust is one of those great, you know, classic Justice League villains. He's, you know, he's been fighting the team since the beginning. He still comes back. He shows up a lot in, in, in other media, like he was in the Justice League Unlimited cartoon. They did a really nice job with him in there. You know, he's been in Justice League Dark recently. He's just one of these great classic characters. I love seeing him again. His history is really fascinating to read, just all the... Um, you know, mythical stuff that he's done and gone through. So it's, it's pretty cool. I, you know, I, I, I dig the character. Thanks, Rob. That's nice. <laughs> I'm trying to keep this moving. <laughs> we have many, many more pages to go. I have no intention of, to, of moving quickly through this thing. I'm giving this issue what it deserves. And if it means it's an eight-hour podcast, the folks at home will be thankful for it. So I, they... uh <laughs> I... <laughs> Folks, you tell us. I think I saw an entry, uh, a response on one of the things uh, this past time that said we could do an hour and a half per character. So. Oh, Lord. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll move on. Fine. All right, next. Female Furies by Jack Kirby and Greg Thiexen. Of course, you know, Jack Kirby drawing all the fourth world stuff, so this is sort of right, in, you know, right, the right artist for the right characters. Now, I will say, hmm, okay, you know... This like is Matt absolutely Her- one of his weakest drawings. Just, okay. It, it just to- is, okay? I mean, the guy was a genius. He deserves every bit of praise that he gets. But he, not every drawing he ever did was a masterpiece. I'm sure Mr. Kirby, if he was still alive, would say that Would, would say that himself. This is not one of his better drawings. Particularly that drawing of Mad Harriet in the back right is... She is freaking me the hell out. very weak. It, it's just, you know, hey, everybody has their off days. And this was one of Jack Kirby's off days. This, even, this even, even, even Barda's proportions just are weird. Like her arms and legs are really skinny. Yeah, the poses are strange. It's yeah, it's yeah. you know. Matt Harriet literally it looks like um like a Peter Bag zombie, you know, sort of thing. It's it's so outlandish and weird it looking. Looks a little it's like really... Phyllis Diller kind of cross. Ooh, it does look like Phyllis Diller. Oh. <laughs> so, but I do love Stompa in the background, just stomping on stuff. Doing I, what she. <laughs> Boldly doing what her name tells you she's going to do. Exactly. I, now, just to cover the character, and again, another team entry, folks. Cover the characters, Big Barda, Bernadette, Lashina, Mad Harriet, and Stompa. I love these characters. They're lots of fun. 
I love when they show up to fight people. Now, here's the thing that blew my mind when I read this. And I must have read these comics. I just don't remember. Apparently, the female Furies came to Earth and became good guys? They got me. It says that they um, they left Apocalypse and, and stayed with Barda and Mr. Miracle and went on their road show. <laughs> their traveling stage show. <laughs> no memory of that at all. I have no memory of that whatsoever. And I'm like, what? I... I mean, I know Lashina later on would show up in Suicide Squad as Duchess, which was really cool. But I can't imagine Bernadette, you know, helping Mr. Miracle. Just, what? That, uh, that mask that Lashina wears looks so painful. The thing across her nose it just looks yeah. so uncomfortable. I am, like, looking at her. <laughs> She's a real S&M-looking kind of character. It's, uh, I imagine there's a lot of people that really dig her. So. <laughs> there's anyway. just a lot of slash fiction out there. Right. <laughs> All right, folks. Next up, we have Pharaoh Lad by Dan Day and Larry Malstead. Now, it's an interesting choice to have Dan Day draw this. I did a little research on it. Dan Day really had not done much DC. In fact, he was probably best known for doing Aztec Ace up to this point. Oh, I so, remember that book. <laughs> yeah. So how he landed this, I'm not really sure. But I will say he does a very nice job with it. You know, the, the body of Pharaoh Lad is just sort of st- just typical – Superhero-ish. Kind of a strange but, pose, though. He's, like, leaning on the frame of the picture. <laughs> well, that's one of the nice things about the frame. The frame of the picture is rivets. Right. You know, iron rivets, which is really clever. It's like, oh, that's really cool. And, you, and the serpent is got all kinds of metal, you know, metal work going on and rivets. And, and the, the pictures are inset into these metal work. So it's nice. And you got a big close-up. It's funny because, you know, I said you get a the, the serpent image, you get a close-up of their face. Well, we've never seen Pharaoh Lad without his mask, so the close-up in the background is still his mask, which is funny. <laughs> and, uh, Rob, even even you should know this as a Legion hater. What is Pharaoh Lad most famous for? Dying. Dying. That is correct. <laughs> Very good. In fact, I did a little research just to see. I, I couldn't help but wonder, after reading so many years about how Pharaoh Lad died, you know, was he introduced just to die? You know, he maybe. He was only around nine issues. So. That was it, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, wow. And yeah, well, then, yeah, of, I think he, that's what it was. He's appeared a bunch of times since, you know, in right, flashbacks. and whatever. stuff. And then in the, in the Legion, after Zero Hour, you know, a bunch of Legionnaires were cloned, and he was one of them. So he was around after that. Anyway, but he's, you know, in classic Legion history, he was only around for nine issues. So, kind of funny. Now, here's a, here's a peculiar thing. He has a brother who also has uh, mutant, mutated... Power, powers and disfigured bodies and stuff like that, which I, I'm wondering if that's both of them in that one shot in the background because there's two guys there. Oh, yeah. But either way, it says Douglas, which is the brother, when, was unable to take the shock of his brother's death and remained under the care of Brainiac 5 before vanishing into a parallel universe. <laughs> well, what? That can happen. Right. I mean, that, I mean, sure, it happens all the time. But well, what? Just very strange, very weird kind of thing to bring up. Uh, one one thing I will mention is just, and I don't mean to pick on this drawing because it's a nice drawing, but um, having studied some anatomy over the years of having to draw it, I have to wonder what muscle that is on Pharaoh Lad's right arm on his shoulder, that big round baseball. <laughs> I don't know what muscle that is. <laughs> it's not his bicep. It's not his tricep. It's not. It's. I don't know what that is. So maybe he was stung by a bee. I don't know. <laughs> um. Well, I should I should say real quick, I mentioned that he's most famous for dying, and, you know, I, I said just a few minutes ago, you can't read a Legion entry without reading about the Sun Eater. He sacrificed himself battling the Sun Eater to save uh, to save everyone. And we so. see him in the background slapping Superboy, so that's good. 
That is well. That's exactly right. Because Superboy was going to do it, right? And Farrowbat Farrowlad was nervous because he thought that perhaps that the Sun Eater could uh, could even get to Superboy. So he knew the Superboy was too important and took did, took it upon himself to do it. So you're too much of the DC line, Superboy. <laughs> I do. One of the things I like about this drawing is the Serpent is a, a really nice blue or cyan, I guess. But it's it's a nice strong color. And it works really well with the entry in his color scheme. Mm-hmm. So I just oh like, yeah yeah it's a very it is a nice nice entry art wise. Yeah. yeah, the logo's a little weak, but mm-hmm. ne- speaking of odd logos, next up is the Fiddler. That's a really odd logo. It's sort of that just, is a very weak logo. It's very it's weak. it looks like a monster logo, like a hair like it you'd give to a hairy monster. Does not match this character either the character or the the entry at all. Th- that right. needs to be in like calligraphy or something or some sort of right. I was thinking elegant. You know, yeah, script. exactly. Yeah. Calligraphy would make the most sense because it would look like music sheets. Yeah. So, perfect. So, folks, we have the Fiddler, who is a classic Flash, you know, Earth 2, JSA-type villain. Uh, very, you know, fancy kind of character. And he's wearing, you know, uh, in this case, a green tuxedo. Very classic uh, with tails and, and the bow tie with the long strings and stuff. And he's, you know, long, white, flowing white hair, and he's playing the violin. It's a great drawing by Sandy Plunkett and Joe Rubenstein. It's a great now, drawing. I think this is one of the best drawings in the book. I just this, the the detail and the the, clo- the, the close up on, on his face in the background is really looks. It's a great look on his face. I think this is really yeah. one of the nicer listings. He looks sort of sinister. He, yes. Um, yeah, yeah. There's an actor from the '70s who appeared as like on every show. You know, like one episode every show, and I can't remember his name. And that's who he looks like. Oh gosh, if I could, if I knew his name right now, I'd go blah, and everyone would go, "Oh, you're right." Anyway. Um, Pointless if I can't remember it. So, Sandy Plunkett, yeah, sort of interesting. Blind alley there. If I knew his name and I, if I could Google it without you going, is this the time for that? Anyway, so <laughs> Sandy Plunkett really didn't draw any DC up to this no, point. This no, this is another kind of like kind of yeah. left field drawing, yeah. But it worked out well. I mean, she she did some Marvel stuff, but she you know it's a really nice piece. I think Sandy, so get, I think Sandy Plunkett's a man. Oh really? Oh Dang, okay. Yeah. Okay. One of the nice things about this is you get uh, two two things in the background which are, are fun. One <laughs> my is my favorite element that's coming up. He's, he has the flying car <laughs> the, that's shaped like a violin. It is the best car. I'm sorry, that's even better than the Batmobile. That is just oh yeah, the or the coolest, Aero car. The I most mean, it's ridiculous just... car in the history of anything. <laughs> well, in this case, I guess it's a plane. I get well, it's, right? It's like a hover car. Uh, yeah. By the way, Sandy Plunkett is in fact a man. There you go. While you're at it, Google this guy from the 70s I'm thinking of. <laughs> anyway. Shag's useless anecdote.com. Hmm. Dude, it's like, I mean, if you were to look up Battlestar Galactica and, and Buck Rogers and everything else, you'd be like, oh, that dude was totally in everything. Anyway, so there's a great shot of the fiddler playing the fiddle in the background, too, and the musical notes are floating off of the fiddle and slamming into the flash and sort of like setting him back, which is nice. And uh, Rob, I want you to remember this little drawing here. In a little while, we're going to talk about it again. Okay. Well, now, he has a twin brother named Maestro, which, you know, Who is disappeared fitting. into a parallel dimension. And, oh, wait. No, no, no. <laughs> Actually, I was going to ask you, since you're my Justice League guy, there was a villain that the Justice League Detroit fought who had, like, a modified Fiddler electronic uh, Allegro. guitar. Allegro, yeah. Oh, uh, wasn't Maestro. Okay. Yeah, no, 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 yeah, it was a totally separate guy. But it was connected to Fiddler, if I recall. 
like I think his electronic guitar, like he he, he shared a prison cell with Fiddler or something. Like that. I don't remember. <laughs> I like sense, how. Though. What's that? That makes sense though. I, I like how they they go to lengths here to to talk about how Fiddler got fat. I don't know. Maybe that had been a recent appearance or something, but they talk about how he had gained a lot of weight, but now he's lost it. It's like, okay, yeah. you know, great. You know, has he filed his taxes this year too? I don't know. He's, so he's I, one of the few characters in comic books who has white hair who is not old. Usually mm. usually white hair is, you know, like that's the instant signifier of being old. But he's like one of two characters I can think of that has white hair that's not necessarily meant to be an old person. Good point. Good point. I, I can think of more than two. But anyway... He's also a member of crimes, the Crime Champions, which I always thought was like a funny name. The Crime Champions? That this, what? So, but that's a group from early Earth-1, Earth-2 crossovers that was composed of Earth-1 and Earth-2 villains. So, in fact, Felix Faust was also a member of that team. And he's been around a long time. His first appearance is All Flash number 32, which is like from the late 40s. So he's been around quite a long time. And he's still used nowadays. I mean, I don't know if he's appeared in the New 52 yet, but... Prior to New 52, I mean, he would appear in JSA and stuff, and he was part of the um, Injustice Society of the World, and, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a long-standing character. In fact, didn't Grant Morrison use him in the Flash of Two Worlds story? Isn't he responsible for shunting Keystone City into, like, uh, like a, a, a just disappeared for, like, 30 years? I do not remember. Okay. All right. Well. A lot of interesting history. If, if you get a chance, you should read his entry. It's really kind of interesting how he shared a prison cell with somebody who taught him about these magic power of music, kind of base, essentially. And then Fiddler broke them out and eventually killed the guy. And it's just, it's really a kind of fleshed out, creepy, nice history. All right, moving on, folks. We have officially entered the fire portion of the book. From here for quite a while, every character is going to start with fire. First character is Firebrand, and this is uh, Firebrand 1, alter ego Rod Riley. And he is a classic character going all the way back to Police Comics number 1. He, and, and he's got a, a drawing by Murphy Anderson. He is swinging in on a wrecking ball, which is sort of strange. And he's also, now they look at it, very disproportionate. He's got really long legs. Wow. So he's swinging in on a wrecking ball, wearing red tights, and a see-through, sort of transparent pink shirt. <laughs> Something for the ladies. Right. And his headpiece, I don't even know how you describe it. It's, uh, he's got the domino mask, but it's got a skull cap attached to it. And it's red. And it's tied in the back. And uh, he's very uh, flamboyant, is the way to put it, I guess. Well, he looks like a pirate. It has a kind of piratey look. It looks like a Hollywood pirate. Well, right. Yeah, Hollywood <laughs> pirate. Hollywood buyer. So now he appeared in 13 issues of Police Comics, and then didn't really show up again until the 1970s when there was that sort of retcon comic book, Freedom Fighters. You know, that followed the adventures of the Freedom Fighters that from the 1940s. Yes. yes. And he, uh, interesting history. I mean, just like all the Freedom Fighters, he is constantly jumping back and forth between like Earth Two and Earth X, over and over and over and over. If you're not familiar with Earth X, that was the Earth where the World War II continued. And the Nazis had taken over pretty much everything. And so Uncle Sam gathered a group of heroes together, and we'll talk about this more in a few minutes, and, uh, and they would go over there and battle the Ratsies. This is uh, another drawing by Murphy Anderson where you have a, a, another like, background element that's drawn alongside the character. Like he drew Dollman, and a Dollman's shoving his face, shoving his uh, fist in that cat's face. 
Right. And now you've got Firebrand on the wrecking ball there. So this is just obviously it was like a motif that Murphy Anderson liked to utilize for these listings. The wrecking ball so strange. And I, I have to say, I, I really laugh at the drawing at the bottom corner of Firebrand having just beaten up a bunch of guys, and he's just running away. Right, and the cop's scratching, <laughs> the cop's his, head scratching like, huh. his head like, what? Now, what is that? What is that Brinks thing with the torch? I don't know what that is. I don't know what that. I don't know what that means either. I don't know if that was like a famous New York landmark, and I just don't know my stuff. I don't know. But he's got some. Uh, he shows uh, Rod's face in there, and it's got a couple other supporting characters. And he's got him working out, punching, punching the bag. In fact, he punches the bag, you know, like a boxing. What do you call his heavy bag? So hard it breaks the rope, and slams into his buddy Slugger Dunn. <laughs> Great name. Yeah, exactly. So, all right. So moving on from that one, uh, we go into our next page again. Firebrand. This is Firebrand 2. This is Rod Riley's sister, Danette Riley, who was one of the mainstays in the All-Star Squadron comic book. And honestly, one of my favorite characters and one of my earliest comic book crushes. Redhead. I know. Irony, isn't it? Uh, just <laughs> It's not. It's not irony, actually. It just fits in perfectly. Hardwired programming. There you go. <laughs> this is done by Rich Buckler and Mike DiCarlo. So, um, you know, Buckler, of course, was well known for his work on All Star Squadron, and so he's you know the ideal one to do this. And you know, again, this is for you, uh, Hector, and also the pun. She's hot. Cause you get it? She's on fire. You get it? It's awesome, right? Can you add like a wah wah wah? Price I right? can. I don't. I'm not going to. But I mean, I <laughs> well, it really is nice art. They've done a great job. The the front image of her is very like it's almost like the opening of a TV show credits. How like. Characters are always turning around yeah. in the camera. <laughs> She's sort of turning around like, ha, blasting you with fire. You know, you know what I'm talking about? That yeah, way that oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. That's why I'm laughing. I can totally yeah. picture it. So, uh, so it's a nice shot of that. And then in the serpent, you get her falling into the vat of fake lava that gave her her powers. Yeah, uh, yeah unlike the other firebrand, she has powers. He doesn't have yes. any. He was just a tough guy. She has the powers of fire. She can generate fire and control fire. So she was she was incredibly powerful, and really. you see her doing, and, she's melting the Nazi gun there. Yep. And as she was a retcon, she didn't actually come about, even though she fought during World War II, she didn't come about until the 80s. But she was a great, strong female character. Yeah, she's in, a Roy Thomas creation. Yes. She's a great, um, strong female character for the 80s, and also nice to have a retcon strong female character in the 40s there, you know, or another one, I should say, because there's obviously some. But, you know, nice picture of her without her mask there, and then, as you mentioned, her melting the Nazi gun. So, one of the, I, I have one critique, though, and I don't know if this is a coloring issue or a drawing issue. We mentioned Firebrand's sort of see-through shirt. Mm-hmm. She adopted her brother. Her, her costume is almost identical to her brother's. The only difference is, is she put on a red bathing suit underneath the see-through shirt, for modesty's sake, and then took off the skull cap part of the mask. Otherwise, it's exactly the same costume. But it looks here that the bathing suit's actually on the outside of the shirt. I don't know. What do you think? Uh, hmm. Yeah, a little bit. I, I kind of see what you're talking about. I, I, I think it could go either way. It looks. It yeah, does I, look, I, when, when I think about it, to me, it always did look like it was, it was over the, the pink shirt, not under it. But it's actually under. But, it's, so. but it is supposed to be under, yeah. Which, yeah. Which in fact, and you know, now the stomach actually you can see like folds in the cloth. Maybe right. that's supposed to, I don't know. Either way. So, but one of my favorite characters, I really think they should bring her back. She, one, I, I loved her her history. It was so steeped in like JSA kind of stuff. I mean, her history is tied to Perdegaton, Wotan, the JSA, 
Uh, you know, just she she really is an all star. We should end with that. That's a good way to go out on that one. That's how I planned it. <laughs> All right. Next up, we get uh, our first two-character split page. We get the Firebug and Firefly. So I, I think I like this because I think it's a nice parallel and a nice contrast to these two drawings. The Firebug is a Batman villain. Yes. Who, you know, as the name would suggest, he was an arsonist. In fact, he is. Um, his occupation is former military demolitions expert, now arsonist. So that's his job. Apparently, he gets paid for. <laughs> so, but the drawing is really great. I mean, here's another another Iron Man looking character. I mean, if you look at him, he he's got that the sort face of iron, is totally Iron Man. Yeah, and he's got the red and yellow and the and, and the boots and the gloves and all that business. So he looks very Iron Man like with cool wings. It's a really sort of unique design for the wings, and I really dig it. Now, Dennis Cohen did the drawing, and as far as I can tell, he has no connection to the character at all. But, man, he really delivers. You see Joseph Rigger without the mask in the background of the serpent, and then you see him sort of tackling Batman in a very small little image because, you know, they're squeezed into a half page, so there's only so much they can fit. But, you know, he, he became Firebug. Basically, it's kind of crazy. I don't know if you read the entry, but, like, his family all, like, died within three weeks of each other. Yes, he's known relatives, unknown mother, father, sister, all deceased. Right. Uh, I, there's, by the way, there's a whole bunch of unnamed relatives in this issue that they keep talking about. Like, I get doesn't everyone technically have, like, probably an unnamed mother in comics? I mean, some, they all came from somewhere, right? Anyway, so his family was killed, and they all died in separate building-related accidents over a three-week period. And it drove him drove him nuts. So he felt like he had to burn down all of these buildings before they could hurt anyone else again. So in a weird sort of way, he was more misguided than a bad guy. Well, so. <laughs> he really misguided. Well, I mean, he, you know, he, tragic. Then. Let's put right. it that way. Yeah, yeah. Tragic character. So it's not like he was trying to get rich. So he right. was actually trying to protect other people. So anyway, so he, you know, he fought Batman and, uh, and near as I could tell, he, um, He's probably dead, but, you know, I don't know. I, I think he may have popped up a few more times after this. But anyway, honestly, the only reason he's really worth mentioning is he's cool looking. So The uh, the entry is a little awkward in that the last line of it from Powers and Weapons is on its own line. Yeah. So that just looks strange. <laughs> yeah, it's like it was able to project from hidden open ings in the fingertips of his gloves. <laughs> <laughs> I really like his logo. I think his logo looks pretty cool. Mm-hmm. So on the same page, and again, this is sort of the parallel and contrast. Both are fire characters, but they're also contrast because the next one is a firefly and actually has nothing to do with fire. <laughs> this is one of my favorite drawings in the book because I love Brett Blevins. I think he's like super underrated on Brett Blevins as a, okay. as a comic book artist. I love his cartoony style. Like he is a perfect guy. Like if you ever wanted to emulate like 50s Batman, to me he'd be the guy to do it because his stuff looks a lot like Dick Sprang to me. Yeah. Which is yeah. a huge compliment uh, in my mind. But, man, this is the doofiest-looking character. <laughs> and Brett Blevins gave him, like, the doofiest pose, too. Like, he's in this completely unfrightening un, un costume, and yet he's like, ah! <laughs> right, so right. Stupid. <laughs> I mean, I got to assume they got Brett Blevins on purpose. Because, I mean, he is probably, like, the, the best match for this character that anyone could do. Because you're right, right this he's is from I that era, this, yeah. Exactly. I mean, you can even see Batman. He looks like a Dick Sprang Batman. Okay. And it's just totally ridiculous. I, why they included him, actually, I kind of wonder. But he is ridiculous looking. And, he, and, again, not a fire. Even though he's Firefly, he's not a fire character. He's a light-based character, which is part of the contrast I like. But 
I dig his, his in the serpent his his face. You know, <laughs> he's got that same ridiculous, you know, really gung ho ha ha. Yeah, he's great. But he he has white hair also, but with black temples. Oh, kind of okay, yeah. all right. I didn't so. realize that. Of course, it says it right there. Of course, but I didn't. Even, yeah, I didn't realize yeah. that. He looks more like Killer Moth, really, than like any fire yes. character. I, another ridiculous character. Yeah. But. <laughs> just, I just, I just love that. I just look so. He's so proud of himself. I know, I know. By the way, I'm going to mention this is totally out of left field. I should have mentioned this at the beginning. I noticed something this time going through Who's Who. What are on issue eight that I should have noticed in the previous seven issues, but I never did. Each entry ends with a little colored square. Yes. I never noticed that before. Oh yeah. I just, I thought, I was like, oh, they must have added this this issue. So I went back and looked at some previous issues. I'm like, no, I just suck at detective work. I guess it's their visual version of telling you that the entry is over, that you don't have yeah. to keep reading. Yeah, I guess so. And it seems like it usually matches the color of the character's logo, Yeah, because it's green, red here. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, interesting. All right, next up is Fire Hair. Love this Fire. entry. Yeah, this is a great one. This is Joe Kubert, folks. Firehair is a young boy, uh, a red-haired boy, Caucasian, who basically survived. <laughs> you have a crush on him, <laughs> We must not speak of it. He's a minor. Anyway, so he survived a, an attack and was raised by an Indian tribe, the Blackfoot Indians, as raised as one of their own. So his, growing up, he thought he was a Blackfoot Indian, not realizing he was actually one of the white man. And then eventually, when he's... He turns, I guess, 18 or so, and he goes to become a man. He goes to a white man's city, and he's not – so he, he's, a, he's a man of two worlds, of the, of the white man's world and of the Indian world, but neither accept him. He was very torn on what to do because neither world wanted him, and yet he felt like he had a place there. So interesting character to read about. Now, he appeared in some Tomahawk comics. So did you read him in those Tomahawk comics? Mm-hmm. I know you're a Tomahawk Yeah, he, had his, yeah he got his own like a little backup strip. And, and he, for, well, first of all, he debuted in Showcase number 95 as his own feature. Um, he got his own you know, full-length story, and then they moved him as a backup strip in, in Tomahawk. And Yeah, I, those are, they're, they're, they're good. They're good stories. Okay. Obviously, Kubert does an amazing job here. You've got Firehair running at the camera. You know, with his red hair and, and the ponytails flowing behind him in the background, the, the serpent is just chock full. You've got this great close-up of his face. You've got him roping a horse. You've got him surviving the attack of the baby and crawling out and the Indians finding him. You see the battle. Just really, really impressive stuff. I, I really like his running. I mean, he is hauling ass. Mm-hmm. It looks like a classic movie poster. Uh, with all, you know, We see mm. all the scenes of, you know, yeah. like a a 50s or 60s war movie, and it would have all these scenes and it would have a painted backdrop of, you know, this this part, this part, this part, and that's what it looks like. And the logo is great, too. That's a that's a, that's a that's the logo he had in the beginning when he when he debuted. It's a really nice logo. It is. And one of the interesting things about this, too, is he had seven appearances prior to this, and yet this entire entry is just his origin. Like, they don't talk about anything he did after his origin. So, like, I, I found myself wondering what his later adventures were like. Because it doesn't say anything here. All right. Moving on to the next and very important <laughs> entry. Ladies and gentlemen, we have arrived at Firehawk. That's right. Woo! Firehawk of Firestorm. And this is art by Raphael K. Yannon and Dick Giordano. And it is a gorgeous shot of Firehawk in her blue costume that she got in Crisis on Infinite Earths. It's an all-blue costume with an orange hawk screaming out. Very uh, asymmetrical design. 
with the sort of sun symbol similar to Firestorm's. And she has this bluish, whitish hair. And uh, that's in the foreground. In the background, you've got, you, sh- you see Lorraine Riley, her alter ego, her face. You see her in her original costume blasting a car, it looks like. And then you see this really cute shot of her in Firestorm posing for the Sears catalog on the bottom. You know, I feel like that's a, that's a, a goof on a classic painting, but I can't place it. Like those okay. poses look so familiar to me, like they're from they're from a painting that that I should know, but I can't think. Of I it. just I just think of like the the Sears catalog, like the kids section where the kids are posing, and you know the cool middle school kids are wearing cool clothing. They'd be like propped up in those kind of poses. Yeah, like, it, could, it could just be that. It could be I've just been you know years of looking at you know catalogs over the years. That that's what I'm thinking of. But one of the things I found interesting about her character, she appeared in Fury of Firestorm number one, but did not become Firehawk until Fury of Firestorm number seventeen. So, you know, it's, you know, makes you wonder, was Jerry Conway playing the long game there or not? And, and when I spoke to him, I want to say off the top of my head, I think he just said he was really introduced Lorraine as more of just a female character. And the Firehawk thing came down the line. But now here's the interesting thing. I mentioned earlier when this issue hit the shelves. This issue hit the shelves on July, I want to say it was 18th, I think, 1985. Okay. July 18th, 1985. Now, Crisis on Infinite Earths number 8 hit the shelves on August 1st, 1985, two weeks later. If I'm remembering my stuff right, and any MASH heads listening, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, Crisis on Infinite Earths number 8 was the first appearance, at least I thought, of Firehawk's new blue costume. Yes, it is, because she creates it right then and there. Yes, but I don't know if she was shown in Firestorm already wearing it prior to that. Okay. That's the only thing I can't, I can't confirm off the top of my head. I don't think she was. Because I'm pretty sure the first time we ever saw her in that costume in Firestorm was in number 42, which would have been a month or two later. So I believe this entry, by two weeks, is the first appearance of this Firehawk costume. It's nice. It's it's, it's really very nice uniform. I love the contrasting colors of the blue and the orange. I think this is really very sharp. Now, typically, I am very opposed to blue and orange because those are the colors of the Florida Gators. However, (laughs) in in this case, it's wonderful. It looks great. The, that when they changed her costume, they also changed her hair because originally had been you know fiery reddish type, and here they changed it to whitish bluish, still fiery, and it just it made this amazingly beautiful contrast. So Raphael Cannon did a great job designing this costume. It's one of my favorites, and uh, in fact, I commissioned Tom, your buddy Tom Zaylor, to do a drawing of this for me not too long ago, and I asked him to use this costume because I like it so much. Moving on, next one. Fire Jade by <laughs> none other than a previous um, guest on this show, or on the Fire and Water podcast, Mr. Dan Jurgens. So he he penciled it and Dick Giordano inked it. Now this is a character from Amethyst and had sort of a, a long road, this character, because she started off as uh, Lady Emerald and Princess Emerald. And then, <laughs> this is really strange, her alter ego is Lady Emerald Deceased. When I read that, I thought, oh, that's interesting. They're telling us now when people are dead. No, not exactly. She was Lady Emerald and then died, and then her spirit came back. So Fire Jade is really the spirit of Lady Emerald. Okay. A little confusing. So, But I, uh, I, now I wondered, I, when I saw this, I thought Dan Jurgens did this. How strange. I, I don't remember... Dan Jurgens doing an Amethyst. And sure enough, I looked it up. He did actually draw an issue of Amethyst right around this time. So that would explain why he did this entry. She's got a really interesting mask, folks. She's in the foreground. 
This is one of those entries that Rob can't stand where it's not just her that's in color. She's also got like a weird, rocky, mossy thing to stand on. I don't think I said I couldn't stand that. I think it works think, here. I think it worked quite well here. I think you screamed, actually, like a primal scream when we saw it last time. But anyway, so she's standing on this you know, rocky sort of thing. And she, her costumes are very revealing. It's one of these drapery sort of fantasy-based costumes. But her, her mask is where the discussion has to <laughs> Yeah, <happen>. this is <laughs> – if you start from the bottom, you're like, uh-huh, uh-huh. Oh, nice bare midriff. Oh, nice show. Oh, wait a minute. What? <laughs> what? What is that? Her mask is sort of like a giant traditional flower petal like you would draw as a kid. But it's all green. And the, the, the nose and mouth and eyes are exposed. It's it's really strange, but okay. Here's where here's where it gets a little weird. Like, I find it kind of sexy. Maybe it's wow. because she's like half naked is what it really is attracting me. But it's it works for me. I don't know. And she, I re- really like like her mouth and eyes and stuff. She looks so determined. <laughs> I can't look at that and not think that it just means that the movie has been rated not fresh. Not fresh. Yeah. I don't understand that at all. You don't ever go to RottenTomatoes.com. Oh, okay. Yes. Uh, not very often, but okay. So I do like the serpent. There's a really nice amethyst uh, in there. Jurgens did a nice job drawing amethyst blasting, uh, or, or I guess creating a shield from a blast by fire jade. So Nice logo, too. It is a nice logo because it has a contrast of fire and jade. Yeah. All right. Moving on. All right, we have another one of our Legion of Substitute Heroes entries. The trademark of all of these have so far have been a huge image by Keith Giffen. And in this case, it's Keith Giffen and Carl Kiesel. And it's a really nice, huge image with little bitty text. Not a whole lot to say. Well, there is, though. That's the thing. These characters actually have a lot of history we're talking about. But for some reason, with Legion of Substitute Heroes, they chose to make it as short as possible with all of them. I mean, we've seen... I think this is our third entry. Color Kid yeah. and Chlorophyll yeah. Kid. Chlorophyll Kid only got half a page. But That's Col- true. Color Kid got a full page. But this is very much like the Color Kid entry. Yeah. You know? So, Firelight's fun. He's, he's got a fun sort of costume. I like how the colors sort of blend and stuff. And he, the eyebrows are so strange. Like, it, are they makeup? I don't know. You know? <laughs> he has big flames instead of eyebrows. Oh, so. I assume that those are just really flames. Yeah. Okay. Maybe they are. I don't I don't know, because his costume is drawn flames. They're not actually flames. Because <laughs> he breathes fire. He doesn't, like, have a bunch mm. of fire powers. He just breathes fire. So I thought they were, like, makeup. Anyway, we probably talk more about this than it really deserves. Yeah, I'd say so. All right. Especially next when, entry, what's next, yeah. The next entry, this is it. This is your moment of zen. This is the one, folks. This is it. Firestorm. I'm going to make my one comment. Man. I'm going to make my one comment, then I'm going to get out of your way. Professor Stein's head is very flat. I haven't written down here. He reminds me of the Spider-Man villain. Was um, <laughs> Hammerhead? Is that his name? The Hammerhead, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, the, the, the big flat head is the Spider-Man villain. He looks like that. It doesn't look like Professor Stein, it's, which is odd. You know, He's got glasses, so that's the only reason you really know it's Professor Stein. Anyway, but I should say, this is drawn by Al Milgram, the man who co-created Firestorm. So it's great that they got him back for this. Uh, I think he was actually working for Marvel at this point. He was. Point. He was really a Marvel guy. So, yeah, it was another... It's kind of a nice thing, as you say, getting the original creator to come back even though he was not working for DC at the time. Yep. Now, uh, now it's nice to see Ronnie because that is classic, you know, Firestorm first series Ronnie. That is what Ronnie used to look like. Very G, G-Wiz sort of 1950s look. 
So it's nice to see that again. Now, one of the neat things about this drawing is that Firestorm is flying out sort of sideways. It's almost like you should turn the drawing. Oh, but the heads go the other way. So it's almost like the drawing's going two ways. So it's like an M MC Escher drawing of Firestorm. And here's something that I, I learned from talking to Al Milgram that's interesting. If you look at his sleeves, you know, he's got Firestorm's famous for his puffy sleeves. And if you notice here, Rob, his sleeves are sort of elongated, though they're dragging behind him because of you know, the, the movement, right? Sure. That was intentional. When Al Milgram, when he was designing the costume, he knew he didn't have a cape, but he wanted something to reflect motion when he was flying at fast speeds. So when they came up with the puffy sleeves, he would elongate the sleeves to show that they're being dragged behind him because he's going so fast. Good idea. So there you go. Now, one of the things Firestorm suffers from is there's a lot of words. So the drawing is not as big as it could be. I mean, there's words all over the place. But because you're talking about two characters, it takes up a lot more personal data space and all this. And the, and Firestorm has some crazy powers. He, I don't know he has they, some of the longest power weapons entry of any character, I'd say. Well, they, Firestorm has a crap ton of powers. I mean, he's insanely powerful. He really is. So the history is extraordinarily small. It basically just boils down to his origin because there's so much in the personal data and there's so much in the powers and weapons. But... You know, here we sit in 1985. It's eight years after Firestorm's creation. You get the original artist to come back, do a great drawing of Firestorm. You know, at this point, Ronnie and the professor are, are going strong. Firestorm was a rising star. This, this is great. You know, this entry just obviously makes me happy. Uh, I hope it makes you happy too, Rob. <laughs> Were you satisfied with it? Like as a kid, as a Firestorm fan? Were you like when you saw this, you thought it was well represented? Um, no, because as a child, I did not appreciate Al Milgram's art. It took a while right? until I became a little older because I came in, you know, my first issues I read were Raphael Cayenne. Ah, right. big difference. And then I, then I'd go back and read some Pat Broderick. And then I'd go back and read the Silver Age stuff, which at that point I, I you know, I was 12 years old or whatever. I hadn't developed a taste for the Silver Age yet. And so I was like, man, these are old school. These are nothing, you know? And uh, so I did not have the passion for Al Milgram that I have now. So I would have, I would have probably been looking for a Broderick or a Cayenne and drawing it at that point in my life. But I'm very pleased with this from as a classic fan. Right. Although, like you said, Stein looks a little bit off, a lot of bit off. <laughs> so next up in the in the in the tradition of the Fire and Water podcast, you've got Firestorm, and on the next page you have Fisherman. Look at that. <laughs> Isn't that nice? Now, this is drawn by Luke McDonald, who I kept calling Luke McConnell in the last episode of Who's Who, by the way. I apologize. This, is, as far as I can tell, this right here is actually his very first DC work. He worked on Iron Man for quite a while and then did this and then boom, right over the Justice League. Oh, this was before that. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so you're probably yeah. right, yeah. So you get the Fisherman, who is a Aquaman villain. Again, Luke McDonald and Bill Ray are the artists. And you've got this nice picture of the fisherman in the foreground just sort of standing there. Uh, I'll give my criticism in a minute. But in the background, you get this nice shot of his face. You can see he, he's still got his mask, but you can see a close-up of his face, which is very nice. You get a shark swimming by. You're clearly underwater. And then you have him uh, grappling Aquaman with his uh, trademark rod. So. <laughs> his fishing which, pole of doom. Which I, is interesting because that's one of my criticisms. He's not actually holding the fishing pole in the foreground. No, no. He, that, I don't know that I've ever seen the fisherman without it. 
Well, okay. I don't know what to tell you. How does he breathe underwater? I, I don't know. <laughs> well, it says he has a, a pressurized suit with recyclable air supply. Okay. Right, but that yeah, helmet that is clearly sense. open. So. He's got an open face, right? Yeah. <laughs> he has one of the more ridiculous masks. It's it's bright yellow with black spots. Like, can you explain that to me, what that's supposed to be? I think it's supposed to look kind of fish-like. You know, like he's supposed to blend in. But it doesn't, since it contrasts so sharply with the rest of the suit. Plus, this is, I don't know, this is might be the debut of his new costume. Because he didn't look like this in the older comics when he fought. Really? Yeah, he had, his uniform's a little different. The helmet's the same. But his uniform, oh, is okay. his uniform is different. So this is – I remember – I think I, the first time I saw this, I was like, wait a minute. That doesn't look like the same guy. So, um, so yeah, he looks a little different here. Um, and that, that harness he's wearing with all those appendages sticking out, that just looks painful. Dude, I'm sorry. I was reading this. I, I remember the, the rod. I had forgotten about the gimmick lures. It's just like, oh, that's just – oh, that's a Batman thing. It's going your utility far. belt, yeah. <laughs> yeah, just oh. Now I am glad they mentioned here that he had recently been defeated by Blue Devil, which was yes. great. I love. It's a fun issue of Blue Devil. Fisherman has one of the biggest logos, I'd say, of any character. His logo is huge. Takes up a lot of space. Well, they kind of had to fill it because there's not a lot to say about him. Right, and, right. And he's, you know, let's face it, he's not he's an Aquaman villain, but no, wah, is that wah, really wah. necessary? <laughs> so nice to you during the Firehawk and Firestorm segments, you know? Were you? Yes. Did I, say, I don't remember that. I that said, was a long time ago. Yeah, I don't yeah, that was like an hour ago. Seems like it, it. feels like it. So, because we've been talking about fishermen so long. <laughs> Actually, it's a really nice Aquaman. I think Luke um, McDonald did a very nice job of, with Aquaman there, which you know would then show up in his work in Justice League Detroit. So, y'all, I, actually, was Aquaman on the team when Luke was drawing it? Nope. Then never mind. Forget what I said. Like you usually do anyway. So. Yeah, exactly. Next up is the Flash. And we're talking about Mr. Jay Garrick here, folks, um, by Eduardo Barreto, one of our favorite Who's Who artists. Just everything this man draws is gorgeous. You've got this great shot of Jay racing, you know, across the across the page with wonderful speed lines. Then there's a huge, huge in the serpent thing of Jay's face with the graying temples. I mean, that just just looks like Jay. I mean, and, you know, Barreto really hit that. A lot of times, secret identity folks, you know, just. You can tell who they are by, like, you know, their glasses or their hair or something. This just looks like Jay. You see him getting exposed to the hard water fumes on the bottom, which is one of the more silly origins. And then, here's why I said... Oh, yeah, there you go. There's the Fiddler. The Fiddler is fighting um, the Flash. And I don't know whether it's intentional or not, but this image of the Fiddler and the Flash is very, very similar to the image of the Fiddler and the Flash on the Fiddler page. I don't know if those were carefully coordinated or just an amazing coincidence, but it, I think it's, it looks great together, and I like to think that it's, uh, it's, it works. I bet, nice it, was, I bet nice, it was coordinated. Nice symmetry. Nice mm-hmm. symmetry. I like that they used the classic logo, too. They used the logo from his 40s comic, which I thought was nice. That's a great logo. Yeah. Absolutely. Really, really dig it. I have some note here, and I have no idea what it says. <laughs> well, Darn it. Well done, like, Jack. It's like in code. How strange. Anyway, one of the things I, I, I get a kick out of whenever I read any of these JSA entries is Ian Carcool shows up. Ian Carcool is, uh, let's see if I can find it, because he gets, he gets talked about so many times in Who's Who. Oh, well. Uh, it's in here somewhere. It, basically, they, they defeated this bad guy, and 
it has kept all of them young and vital. Because remember, the JSA characters were still running around in the 70s and 80s. And so that was sort of a big deal. So the, the, they had to explain how that was done. And it was, it was revealed, I want to say, in an All-Star Squadron annual, maybe? Yes, yes, it was. And it took me years to get that annual. I never owned it. So here it is. Uh, due to uh, The Flash's endurance has diminished somewhat with age, although due to the effects of the temporal energy he absorbed from the villainous Ian Carcool, he retains far more physical vitality than he otherwise would. So for years, I, I like built up in my mind this Ian Carcool moment. It must be like one of the most important things that ever happened in the JSA. And you know, it was just tucked away in an All-Star Squadron annual and wasn't even that big a deal. But it was just like, oh. That was a good story, though. I remember that. That was a really good story. It, it had a nice hook to it where Roy Thomas worked in characters uh, in real life, in real history as well. i got to go back and reread that yeah, all-star. It's a good story. Yeah. So, again, Eduardo Barreto, really nice piece. Love it to death. Next page, you get, this is your kapow moment of the issue, folks. It is the Silver Age Flash. And it's the, the only two-page spread in the book, I believe. And it has Barry Allen Flash running in from the side of the page, sort of running at you. And then in the serpent, you see all kinds of images of Barry. You see him get, getting struck by the chemicals and lightning. You see him unfolding his costume. You see the heads of a lot of his uh, rogues gallery. And uh, it's pretty pretty neat. So I think it's the only character to this point that got he's got two pages. The only solo the only- character to get two pages. Yes, in fact, we, we, we were kind of debating about this previously because, you know, when Batman got one page, there was like an uproar in the letters page about it. And so, you know, we've often wondered whether it was intentional for Flash to have this the whole time or whether it was a result of all the kvetching. So I don't know. But here's where... I mean, look at the history. I mean... The... <laughs> oh, I'm going to talk about that now. Now, first of all, I, by the way, I, don't, I think I failed to mention it's drawn by... Carmen Infantino and Murphy Anderson, you know, it absolutely should be drawn by Carmen Infantino. Yes. I mean, it really should. So, the history. <sighs> okay. Two full columns of text here, because they had lots of space to work with it being a two-page entry. Two full columns of history. And unfortunately, one entire column is almost entirely devoted to the Flash trial, which is not the most fondly remembered piece of Barry Allen history. And as you read this entry, it rightfully so is not that fondly remembered. So it's like, oh, there's so many other things I could have talked about with Barry. So it's, that's, a, that's a little saddening. But anyway, it's, it's still, it's Barry. I mean, he gave us the Silver Age. He's one of the most important characters um, to come out of DC Comics. And this comic, as I mentioned earlier, came out two weeks before Crisis on Infinite Earth number eight. So if you know your crisis history, this published two weeks before Barry's death. So, in fact, I, you know, they don't mention it here, but they just mention he, uh, that he was living in the 30th century, which is where he is in the beginning of Crisis. You know, he, he joins them by coming from the 30th century. Right. But it is, an, it is a nice celebration of the character because you see so many elements in the, in the Serpent, which is, is well done. And um, there's a weird thing in here. It says, um, talking about his origin, it, they take the time to say in parentheses, an account alleging that the accident that gave Alan his powers was actually staged by a being, a being named Mopey is entirely incorrect. Yeah, that... <laughs> what? Okay, you, do you know that story? No. Okay, all right. I'll, let's, I'll take the time out to tell the story. At some point uh, in the uh, mid-60s, I think it might even be Flash number 163. I don't know why I know that, but anyway. 
it's revealed that it was not accidental that Barry Allen got hit by lightning. Of course, now they've undone all that with the whole speed force and all that stuff. But anyway, they had the story where it was revealed that Barry didn't accidentally get the powers. The lightning bolt was directed at him by a magical imp named Mopey. <laughs> and he was basically the Flash version of, you know, Mister Mixpedalek or Batmite or Quisp or you know any of the all the all the you know all the major heroes had their own little magical imps. So anyway, apparently it didn't take too long after the story was published for the comics fandom as it existed at the time to just go no, <laughs> no, no, we are not. And Mopey became like one of the first, as far as I can, as far as I understand it became one of the first instances of the comics fans and the comics publishers sort of getting together unofficially and saying, yeah, that didn't happen. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we published it, but that didn't really happen. So this feels like Len Wein and Marv Wolfman and the other guys having a laugh at Moby's expense by bringing him up only to just then dismiss him. And um, Robert Lauren Fleming and Ambush Bug um, brought Moby back um, uh, what did I say? Probably Fleming and Keith Giffen brought him back in an issue of Ambush Bug, where he that talks, must be why I remember where Mopey he existing. where he talks about. He says, "I am part of the continuity of the DC universe, and there's nothing you can do to stop me, fanboys." So uh, <laughs> that's funny. Okay, because I remember Mopey. I just couldn't place it, but yeah. Ambush Bug makes a lot more sense. Yeah, <laughs> utterly bizarre. Yeah. Two two art notes. I I've always loved you know Infantino's work. Where when Barry's running really quickly, he always draws Barry as like an outline in the speed lines. Mm-hmm. So I love how you can see it's not just a group of speed lines, but you see Barry doing stuff in the speed lines. I always like that. I thought that's a, a nice thing to, to draw do. too. Good lord. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Definitely. And then this is just a weird note. Like the serpent, it shows Barry folding the costume out, you know, the the Flash costume out of his ring. Mm-hmm. Like, it took me forever to figure out what he was wearing. I'm like, what is he wearing? Is that like an 18th century tuxedo? What, <laughs> what the hell is he doing? You know, then I realized, no, he always wears a bow tie and he's just wearing an overcoat. Right. It's <laughs> like, oh, I apparently couldn't piece that all together. It does kind of look like he's ready for a duel or something like that. I was thinking like the opera, but anyway. All right. Up next, the Floronic Man. Really cool logo. I really dig that. Art by Steve Bissett who at this time was doing Swamp Thing and had, in fact, had drawn the Floronic Man for Swamp Thing. So it makes perfect sense to have him draw this Who's Who entry. Yep. And I, the thing I learned from reading this entry was that Floronic Man started off as, like, basically a human. And he, he sort of... Um, something happened after he would... Because when he was a human, he used to fight uh, Ray Palmer the Atom. But something happened to change him into the Floronic Man... And um, but there's just some weird stuff going on here. Like, <laughs> talks about he's from another dimension, even though he's humanoid. He's from another dimension inhabited by wood nymphs, dryads, air sprites, all this stuff. It's a really strange sort of disjointed entry, almost like my description of it in the last couple of moments here. But it, it sort of threw me. I thought he was a failed elemental. It was revealed in Swamp Thing, wasn't it? Yeah, he used to be. He his first name I think was Plant Master. And I think over time, I, I don't know if this was all Alan Moore or if this was more of a uh, slowly evolved, that they tur- you know, turned him more and more into this creature who really doesn't have any sort of bearing on a human existence anymore. The way, he, you know, you see him here in the background 
looking right. human, but at a certain point, when he appeared in Swamp Thing, he was just this total crazy creature here, as we say. And thank goodness the new Guardians reclaimed him. Ooh. <laughs> wow. All right. Uh, but it is nice to see Stephen Bissett carrying on his artwork from Swamp Thing over here. Yeah, it's so. a great drawing. Great creepy, you know, icky. Everybody looks kind of gross and dirty in Stephen Bissett's drawings, which is what he's going for. So, Yep. Next up, Forager by Jack Kirby and Greg Thiexton. Um By contrast, this is, a, I think, a really great Kirby drawing. Uh, you've got Forager, who is sort of a minor New Gods character. He is essentially um, sort of like Spider-Man, you know? He's he's a humanoid bug kind of creature. And uh, I think you want to say, let's see, he can... He has leaping ability. He can stick to walls and stuff. And he's he's got some bug-ish-ness to him. He's, he's their buggy new god. But I guess I'm a little thrown by it because, you know, they keep calling him bugs and stuff like that. But then they show his very human-looking face. So... Because he wears a completely full mask to cover up his whole face and body and everything. So I always assumed he was like, you know, bug-like underneath there. But apparently he might be human-ish. I really, <laughs> I really like the uh, background. Uh, it's uh, very designy and all. it's, it's broken up into panels. Uh, and it's all offset at an angle. So it really is a very striking design. You didn't see too many of the um, color holds do this. But I think it's, it's really sure. And then... It all leads to the big bubble circle, which is the close-up of him without his mask, as Shag mentioned. I think it's a really striking design. I said, as much as I thought that the Female Furies entry by Kirby was pretty weak, I think this one's very strong. Yeah, I think he just spent more time on this one ahead of Rush the Furies or something. But yeah, it's a, it's a great, great drawing. I do love it. I like seeing Orion in the background kicking ass, and so he it's just really cool. He would have looked really cool as a superpowers figure. The way they were working through the new gods. I mean, they, I'm sure they never would have gotten to him because he's too obscure, but... He would have looked smashing as a figure. Well, I dig how he's kind of got that flat head. I think it looks cool. The, the way his color mask design is nice. I think the, the black, white, and red is really sharp. I just think he's, yeah, he's a very visually striking character. And, and, I, and I wonder if, you know, maybe Kirby was going for Spider-Man in this. I don't know. So, I mean, he's certainly buggish. He's got the right colors. That's kind of what I, that's the impression I always got. So, All right, up next is the Force of July. This is a really impressive one also, I think, by Jer- another team, by the way, uh, Jerome Moore and Bruce Patterson. It's, uh, they're from Batman and the Outsiders, and it's a very, very patriotic-themed superhero team. It's one of the things in the 80s where it kind of became a thing where you get a, super, a team, and they're all themed. It's not just you know, people of varying powers and stuff. Everyone, has, there's all part of a theme, and here it's the patriotic theme. You've got their leader, Major Victory. You've got Lady Liberty, uh, Mayflower, Silent Majority, and Sparkler. And I got to tell you, like, I was so inspired by this group. When I had my own role-playing group, I actually created my own group of patriotic superheroes. <laughs> uh, and it was all sort of an homage to this. They were the Revolutionary Warriors. Very nice. <laughs> so, um, now one of the things I found was interesting was that in the, in the story, it mentions that these guys, their existence is a secret from the public, which is odd to me, given that the whole purpose of them is to be so patriotic, you think it would be sort of out there for everyone to know. And Jerome Moore, he did draw their first appearance in that annual, yes. but for, for me, uh, I, I always remember him as the guy who drew those amazing Star Trek covers. He's a good, like, he's a really talented guy. He's kind of under, like one of those guys that, like, 
in comics. Like, I don't think he was never like that big of a star, but he's really good stuff. Really good stuff. Oh yeah, I mean this entry's great. You get a lot going on. The, the serpent, by the way, on this is just simply an all blue American flag, which is really nice because you have each one of the characters. It's almost like a who's who cover because each of the characters is there, but none of them are really in the same. Like, none of them are together. They're all doing their own thing, and none of them are standing on like the same plane. They're all just doing their thing and slapped together in you know to look nice. Like Major Victory takes up almost the whole page, so you'd think he's like twenty feet tall when he's not really. Right. But you, know, you get Lady Liberty with her torch. You get sparklers flying. You get Mayflower growing flowers. You get Silent Majority who's replicating himself over and over and over. Great choices of powers too. I mean, just it all works so well. That Silent Majority idea is just like, oh wow, that's awesome. <laughs> So. Just as a little aside about Jerome K. Moore, in case it doesn't come up again, although I think he did other entries, um, when uh, they tried to do a sequel to the Aquaman miniseries that, that had been so successful, the one by Neil Posner, Greg Hamilton, and then Greg Hamilton couldn't finish the art for the second series, they actually tapped Jerome Moore to take over for Greg Hamilton. Oh, and really? They, yeah, and they had, they had Jerome K. Moore do, I think, a couple of pages um, and they sort of told him, like, copy Craig Hamilton as best you can, which is weird. Oh, wow. You know, like, uh, that's, oof. Um, and uh, you can you can see um, his unpublished cover for the first issue of the miniseries on the Aquaman Shrine. We did list it, but it, uh, I don't think any other art has surfaced. But that series fell apart, too, and it never really saw the light of day, and then it got replaced by that thing a couple years later that Keith Giffen and Kurt Swan did. But, uh, yeah, Jerome, Jerome K. Moore was the guy they tapped to do it. He would have been great because he's very, very talented. He is extraordinarily talented. Yeah, I mean, like I mentioned the Star Trek comics. Those those were such a heartbreaker for me because I'd I'd go in the shop and I'd see, like, either Star Trek or Star Trek Next Generation on the shelf, and there would be a drawing of, like, very rarely in licensed comics do you look at look at a character and go, my God, that looks exactly like the actor, you know. But these covers, it was like, my God, these things look exactly like the actors. And you'd pick it up and you'd open it up, and the interior art was nothing like mm. it. You know, Jerome only did the covers. And so, in fact, some of the – Star Trek had some really bad interior art, in fact. So it was just like, oh. It's when, it's when you get that good cover, crappy interior that just breaks your heart so yep. much. Yeah, So, anyway, great artist, really cool entry, really cool team. Because, I mean, they they were antagonists for the Outsiders, but they weren't bad guys, you know? It was cool. I dug it. Next up is the Forever People, the – the one fourth world team that I could care less about. <laughs> um, they're space hippies, man. They really are. <laughs> they're space hippies. Now, there's some cool things to come out of it. I mean, like, it's another team entry again. By the way, this is done by Jack Kirby and Greg Theakson. I mean, you get Beautiful Dreamer, who I think is really hot. Uh, sorry. You get Big Bear, who I think is kind of a cool character. Mark Moonrider's somewhat interesting. Then you start getting into areas I don't care about. Uh, Sarah Fan, and then. Viking, Viking the Black, which, by the way, the one black guy has to have the black in his name. Really? <laughs> Hitting the nail right on that. I mean, come on. This is the same universe where you just created Black Racer? Come on, Jack. Really? This isn't like creating Black Lightning and they had to make sure black was in the name. It's been a few years. So anyway, you get the Forever People. And uh, they one of, their, one of their tactics, one of their shtick is that they can all uh, work together to summon... Um, Captain Planet, and oh no, wait, I'm sorry, Infinity Man. So they, they they work together to summon this you know great powerful character named Infinity Man, and he 
or what was his name? Cyhawk. I can't remember. Anyway, so <laughs> sorry. I just I can't bring myself to care about the Forever People. Now, one thing, cool thing they did, they did have what was called the Super Cycle, which was Fast a awesome jacked up motorcycle yep. thing that Big Bear would drive. It was really cool. And then Young Justice got it years later, which made me very happy. So that's all I got to say about the Forever People. <laughs> also, not one of. Um, like, the, yeah, forget it. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think we all knew what we were going to say. Let's just let's move on to the all Forgotten right. Heroes. Yeah, well, this is sort of a nice double-page entry that's not really a double-page entry. Yeah, yeah, it's very, it's cute. They're, they're squaring off against each other, yet they do get their, they each have their own separate listings. Yep. On the left, you've got the Forgotten Heroes. On the right, you've got the Forgotten Villains. You know, they, they're done by the same art teams, uh, Paris Cullens and Gary Martin. You've got... Um, you know, the logos are the same. And the left-hand side is set, like you just said, in such a way they're, like, bracing to attack the team on the right-hand side and vice versa on the other side, which is pretty cool. Now, one of the things I find interesting about the Forgotten Heroes and the Forgotten Villains is that the Forgotten Heroes really aren't that forgotten anymore. Because you're dealing with Animal Man, who's headlining his own series. Cave Carson, who just showed up somewhere not too long ago. Was it Justice League, maybe, even? He showed up somewhere not too long ago. Congo Bill and Congorilla, who was part of the Justice League not too long ago. Dane Dorrance of the Sea Devils, who just he showed, showed up, up in Aquaman. Aquaman. Yeah. Dolphin, who is was a major player in Aquaman for quite a while. Immortal Man, who has, I think, faded away, though. I don't think he's anywhere right now or in the last couple of years. I could be wrong, but he's... Yeah, he, he hasn't been, you know, nowhere, though. But Rick Flagg was a major player in the Suicide Squad series through the 80s. And, you know, and Rip Hunter was as big just recently as just before Flashpoint. So you, these are – none of the – the Forgotten Heroes are no longer forgotten. Whereas the Forgotten Villains, however, <laughs> with the exception of Enchantress, you know, Adam Master, Faceless Hunter, Cracklow, Mr. Poseidon, and Ultivac. Great name. So, Yes, the Forgotten Villains are most certainly Forgotten Villains. <laughs> now, it's interesting that I, I thought they just kind of both appeared at the same time. I didn't realize Forgotten Heroes appeared first in an Action Comics book, and then they appeared again in a DC Comics Presents, which is where the Forgotten Villains came in. And I do wonder, did like the Forgotten Villains like look over there and go, well, they're called the Forgotten Heroes, <laughs> oh, you know? Or did they just kind of stumble onto the name, or was it just accidentally given to them? I it, just is, didn't... it is showing an astounding level of self-awareness to call yourselves that. <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, now, Paris Collins did not have a connection to these characters at all, but dang, he does a really a nice job. Beautiful, lit. Both of them, they're, they're just filled to the brim with energy, but it's kind of lighthearted. Gary Martin was the perfect thinker for Paris Collins, in, in, yes. in my, in, to my uh, estimation. So this is a really great. I love Ultivac. I just think it's such a great, just giant, giant robot. <laughs> now, th- this Paris Collins right here, like, this is the time period where he was drawn Blue Devil, or I guess no, actually, I'm sorry, he had moved off Blue Devil. But um, it's this captures that same style he used on Blue Devil because mm-hmm. when he did Blue Beetle, it was a little bit different. I felt like and he's been inked by Bruce Patterson on Blue Beetle. I can't Patterson? remember. I think it was Bruce but Patterson, it, who was tended to be a heavier anchor. Gary Martin has a very light touch. Well, the Gary Martin stuff with with him here is just oh, just awesome. Really reminds me of the Blue Devil stuff. And I think Gary may have been his anchor on Blue Devil. Now that I think about it, but anyway, two fun entries. And of course, you know, I'm a huge Animal fan, Animal Man fan, so I'm very happy to see that. Nice stuff. All right, moving on to the Freedom Fighters. We talked a little bit about them earlier, so I'm not going to. F- 
spend a lot of time on them other than to say, you know, the, the, another team, uh, Uncle Our Sam. Our Black- in a row. What's that? Our fifth team in a row. Jeez. Uncle Sam, Black Condor, Dollman, Firebrand, Human Bomb, The Ray, and Phantom Lady. And that's just some of the Freedom Fighters, folks. Those are just the ones that were regulars of the team. Because they had this crazy rotating roster where they picked up, you know, the Red B. They picked up um, Our Man, which always confused the crap out of me. I'm like, <laughs> Our Man? I, what? Our Man? Really? You know? And... Uh, there, there's others that I'm not seeing the names on here. Uh, oh, Midnight, Plastic Man, you know, uh, the Blackhawks, the Jester, you know, so it's just, it was crazy, crazy times with this team. And if you read their origin, just like any of the other ones we've talked about before, like either Black Condor or Dollman or, you know, Firebrand, they bounce around between Earths like racquetballs in a, in a, in a narrow hallway. It's just like a whole canister of racquetballs and just ding, 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 ding. I mean, they're going back and forth like crazy to Earths. And, um, and most importantly is that Hitler looks awesome in the back. <laughs> awesome in a crazy, cartoony, fun way, I should say. And uh, Oh, you know, I didn't mention the art team. I'm so sorry. Alex Seviak and Romeo Tengel. And uh, it took me a little while to figure it out, but yes, Alex Seviak did in fact draw at least one issue, if not more, of the Freedom Fighters series from the 1970s. He drew Aquaman for a little while, too, in the back of Action Comics. He's done just about everybody. Mm-hmm. He's a great artist. All right. Next up is a Jack Kirby and Bill Ray drawing of Funky Flashman. <laughs> who looks it, it, a little bit uh, like... Like who? You don't know who that's modeled after? No. Stan the Man Lee. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Is it really? Yes. And uh, Stan wasn't too terribly happy about that. I did not realize that. Okay. In fact, apparently there's an issue of uh, whatever book he was in, Mr. Miracle, where yeah. Funky Fleshman has like a little toady, and the little toady was modeled after Roy Thomas. Yikes! Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty harsh, brother. Um, well, that was after Jack Kirby left Marvel. He's a little, oh, little, sure, yeah. Little yeah. Pissed off. The, the Funky Flashman logo is really kind of strange. <laughs> But it's fun. It's a weird character because, like, I was first introduced to Funky Flashman in Justice League International. Even though I had already owned this Who issue, I guess I just hadn't read his entry or really processed it mentally. I, you know, I don't remember bumping into him until the JLI stuff. And there, he was more of like a mischievous character, you know, like a, a used car salesman kind of guy. Mm-hmm. But here, I mean, he's still sort of like that. But he was the leader of the Secret Society of Supervillains at one point. <laughs> so, I mean, it's just bizarre. And here's here's where the the foreground and the background characters sort of mix and blend yeah, here. Yeah, that's a fun little gag of him dropping a snake into the back pocket of this poor guy. It's exactly right. But the, the odd thing is Funky Flashman's in color, but the snake's in the color hole. Yeah. A little odd. And he's secretly bald. It's, it's a fun entry. If you want some laughs, definitely read it. Uh, spend a little time reading it because it's... The guy's got crazy, crazy stuff he goes through. I love so. the little drawing of him pestering Mr. Miracle. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. I like that he's I like that he's bald and he's wearing a wig or a toupee. That cracked me up. All right, next up is Big Jerry Ordway, folks. Is that what we decided to call him? No, I forget what no. we decided. Okay. Well, it's Jerry Ordway, the master. So, And he is drawing Fury, who is uh, the daughter of Earth 2's Wonder Woman. From the Infinity Incorporated. So this is a really nice shot of Fury. Sort of an a honestly reminds me of like a like a, a high school senior class picture. Yeah, I was thinking that. It's a very low key pose as opposed to her smashing stuff or whatever. 
Yep. Because in the background, you know, there's there's some there are actually like family photos. Her lifting somebody on a swing, you know, on a swing set. Her with her dad. I believe that's is, supposed to be Hector Hammond. Oh, uh, not it Hector, probably, Hector Hall. Hector Hall. Not Hector yeah, Hammond. Hector Hammond. There's a relationship that yeah. went south. <laughs> so, Hector Hall, yes, and then above that is her with Hector Hall again. Even though she looks a little evil in that drawing of the serpent, mm-hmm. but so you've got a nice family portrait of Wonder Woman, her and Steve Trevor, her dad. You got her ripping open a giant rock. So, an interesting, you know, origin and stuff with her. She was the daughter of the Earth-2 Wonder Woman, like I said. But she didn't want to become a superhero until she was inspired by the Earth-1 Wonder Woman. Ouch. I know. Now, uh, she was, you know, a founding member of Infinity, Inc., and sort of had a reduced amount of power since she was half-human. So she didn't have full Amazonian powers, but she was, you know, she was still very powerful. Now, she would later go on and have some wild sort of involvement with the DC universe, she, Neil Gaiman picked her and Hector Hall up and used them. That's right. Yes. She became the mother of Daniel. Daniel is Sandman or Morpheus's son who takes over when Morpheus or Sandman died. So she is like the mother of a god, really. (laughs) And then later on, Jeff John sort of reclaimed her and she became the wife of or girlfriend, I think wife, I don't remember which, probably wife, of uh, Hector, I guess she was already married to Hector Hall. Either way, she's with Hector Hall, who at that point had been reborn and became Dr. Fate. Sort of a long, winding road she's had. And now I don't think, well, you know, they've introduced that new Wonder Woman daughter character in Earth 2. I wonder if that, I wonder if she's supposed to be the same sort of character. I actually, I'm behind on my Earth 2 reading. I haven't read those issues yet, so I don't know be interesting to see if she's Fury, you know? Mm-hmm. Her uni- she has dark hair, but... It never really occurred to me before, but her uniform, she has like a half bre- half breastplate. Yes. And I would assume that that's a, a riff on the Amazons, which, you know, cut off one of their breasts so they could fire their bow and arrow more accurately. I would assume that that was... When I'm looking at it, it's like, oh, that must be a gloss on that that thing. Yes, that's exactly... Uh, that same thought occurred to me today, too, when I was staring at her costume. I was like, huh, what's that? Oh, that's right. So that's got to be what it is. It's got to um, be the tributes of the Amazons. Mm-hmm. Considering how long these shows go, I don't know if we want to get into this, but it is timely. Um, have you read that thing that uh, Jerry Ordway wrote on his blog? What are you talking about? Don't, don't you want the internet? What is the matter with you? What the hell's the internet? Yeah, exactly. Jerry Ordway wrote a thing a couple of days ago on his website, basically giving the lowdown about what it's like to be a guy in his position and basically he talks about hey he doesn't get work anymore from DC Comics or any comics companies and they just they tend to regard people of a certain age his age as just like they don't care about them anymore yeah i've, I've heard that story and, before and and for some reason this particular column that 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 Ordway wrote really struck a chord and it got bounced around i saw it on facebook like 10,000 times uh, maybe you should stop hanging out on Google Plus so much and come over to Facebook where things are actually happening. Um, but uh, but yeah, it really struck a chord with people because it was you know I look at it like any industry that can't find work for Jerry Ordway is just a really <laughs> poorly run industry. Not that we didn't know that already, but it, it, I don't know. It's like Ordway is one of the most talented guys that ever did it. And the idea that, like, he at his age is, like, struggling for work, that's pathetic. You know, and he's he also gives it the lowdown about, like, how DC cheats him out of royalties and stuff. 
Uh. Because they, they, they use like kind of funny accounting and saying, well, you know, you're, yeah, you, you know, you did this thing and it was part of this book, but it's only because of some rule. We don't have to pay you the full amount. It's, it's very duplicitous and uh, it made me very sad to read. I'm just on, you know, to read that, to read that DC still kind of pulls those shenanigans. And just the fact that a guy this talented isn't, isn't working. You know, like that's that just made me sad, and it made me want to, um, you know, like try and you know make Ace Killroy so successful that like we have money, and I would hire Jerry Orway to draw an Ace Killroy <laughs> comic because that would be the greatest comic anybody ever saw. Yes, um, it would. So yeah, that, that's that's the thing that, that that's going on with him this week. And, and, and when I saw that thing pop up, and I knew we were doing a Who's Who this week, I was like, oh man, I wonder if Orway does any listings in the issue we're talking about because it's. It's going to be timely, and then this is the one. So I figured it's yeah. worth it to. Anybody who's listening to this, go and search it out. It won't be hard to find. Um, yeah, I'll definitely look it up, and, and you know maybe if we remember, we'll put a link in the show notes. But you know, it's 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 a shame too, though, because you hear that story repeated a lot with different artists and also different writers. And I don't know whether it. You know, obviously, DC is not going to come forward and admit their reasons. You know, they're just they're they're a corporation. They've got well, their reasons. Well, that's your reason right there. Yeah. Well, I mean, and they're, so they're not going to come forward and, and tell what those reasons are because it, it, it obviously ties to money. And so, what it leaves me wondering is: is it a case of somewhere down the line they decided, oh, this guy doesn't sell anymore, you know, right. or is it a his page rate is higher than some kid they can hire right out of Qbert school, and so it's better to you know fiscally to pay some chump who just showed up than pay, you know, a grandmaster artist who, you know, probably is deserving of a higher page rate. Yeah, I mean, it, I guess the, but, sad, the, the sad thing is it's like there's there's just there's so many talented people and there's only so many books, you know, and it's just, it's, but it's in, a, in, in an industry, and I guess most industries are like this, whether it's the music industry or the TV or movies, everybody's looking for the hot new thing, you know, and, the, you know, at one point, Jerry Ordway was the hot new thing. Right, and you know it's like, but the guy clearly showed that he had the talent to print it in the long haul, and the the idea that like he has to sort of struggle to survive in this industry, like that's just pathetic, you know. That's just pathetic. well, it's been going on a long time. Yeah, sadly, I mean, if you look at Jerry Ordway, was the hot thing, and he probably helped push out, on, you know, on, not on purpose or anything, you know, maybe the Kurt Swans or the Fr- or the Murphy Andersons right. or you know those guys who weren't getting work in the eighties. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So it's a shame. It's uh, it's very disappointing that that happens. And uh, it, it sounds like that article is definitely worth – or blog post is definitely worth reading, and I, yeah. I'll be sure to check it out. Next up is Galactic Gollum <laughs> by Kurt Swan and Rick Burchett. Or Burchett, I'm not sure how you say that. But he is, he's sort of like a Frankenstein slash Gollum character who has absorbed – special kind of solar energy and he wants to absorb all of it so he seeks out these kinds of energies he can find so Lex Luthor created this character here's the strange thing it says from the very birthplace of the universe master criminal Lex Luthor gathered particles and pieces of galactic matter until he had enough to build a man so where the hell did he get the the birthplace of the universe in enough matter I mean it's like what? So, but there's this great shot in the serpent of you know a very Frankenstein sort of thing where the the monster's under the sheet and he's you know he's he's alive he's yes, alive yes. and the character itself in the foreground is is all sort of a dark purple indigo color 
and he's got little starbursts and galaxies and stuff you can see in his skin. Like, you can almost see the... Green clovers and blue diamonds. <laughs> you can almost see the universe through his skin, you know, like you would in space. And in his forehead is, in fact, a blazing sun. And it's, it's, a, it's an odd look. It's very interesting, though, because you don't see it too often. Now, I will say Kurt Swan and Rich Brick Bur- Bursette, Burchett. Okay, struggled with fingers. Okay. <laughs> if you, well, if you take a look at the drawing, the fingers are a little kind of unusually large and stubby. But hmm. Anyway, so... He's shoving them right in the camera, though. I mean, it's, the foreshortening is a little weird. It was always, it was always tough yes. to do. I can never do it. Now, he is 8 foot 2, which is crazy. 948 pounds. And at this point, he was currently frozen and, Im- and Im- immobile at the North Pole. <laughs> Next up is the Gambler. This is a JSA villain, a uh, Green Lantern villain, uh, Mr. Stephen Sharp, drawn by Tom Mandrake. Now, if you told me this drawing was by Tam- Tom Mandrake and took away the... Or if you told me to figure out who this drawing was, Tom Mandrake would never come to mind as being someone who drew this. Uh, it's a nice drawing. It's just very different from Tom Mandrake, I think. So I don't know that I would have ever nailed that as a Tom Mandrake drawing. Plus, he has no connection to Green Lantern. As far as right. That. Yeah, and it, I could not find any connection to why he did this character whatsoever. But I, it looks nice. It's a very nice drawing. I like The Gambler is one of these classic characters, folks, who wears a ri- somewhat ridiculous costume. He dresses like a, like a riverboat gambler you know, like from the 1800s. Even though it's not really his look, he's a master of disguise, so he's always changing his looks. And he said, in fact, at one point he said he doesn't even remember what he really looks like anymore. But it's a nice entry. If you're a classic Justice Society fan, um, you'll dig on this because he's part of the Injustice Society of the world. So it's good stuff, you know? I like his little stabby weapon there. It looks very nasty. They call those knives. Okay. So, yeah, newfangled thing. I call them stabby weapons. Yes, you do, apparently. I also like in the Serprint, his sad face. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right, next up is an entry I don't even want to talk yeah, about. Yeah, I think we just moved. They've already covered this with the I know. You know, and that's what we're going to talk about is, <laughs> yes, they did an entry an issue or two ago on the council. And really all it was was... These four plus a robot. Right. So it's like, and I have so little passion for the daring new adventures of Supergirl... I mean, I'm sure somebody, you know, Ange is probably, like, breaking his heart that I said that, but, like... You know, from what I remember, that was not that bad a book. It really, I remember it being kind of cute. It was written by Paul Kupperberg, but okay. but these villains are not terribly inspiring. And it's Car- Carmen Infantino, not his best no, work. No, 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 no. So, one yeah. guy's leg is way out of control there. We're, we're done. Yeah. <laughs> Just move on. <laughs> uh, and we're going on to the last entry of the book, drawn by Terry Austin, typically an inker, but has done all the pencils in this as well. It's a very nice entry of Gargawax. Great drawing. Great drawing. It's a great drawing, but it's a character I could do completely without, though. Like, <laughs> In fact, for you Doctor Who fans out there, um, I can't remember the guy's name, but he looks almost identical to a supporting character who's been in Doctor Who lately. There's this really fat, bald, blue guy has been showing up in Doctor Who quite a bit lately. And this guy looks just like him. <laughs> it's kind of weird. Like, Terry Austin, like, literally, that's that same guy's face. That is his face. I mean, okay. it's just weird. So, but he was a villain of the Doom Patrol. He was part of the Brotherhood of Evil. And, um, you know, he's an alien. So, really nice drawing in the background, though. You get, you get some really weird... I don't know what those guys are because I read the entry and I can't figure out what those guys know. are. They're just weird shaped looking guys. Yeah. The only thing I mentioned with Jerry Wardway again, if I had you know millions of dollars to run my own comics company, 
I would do like a like a Mad Magazine type superhero parody comic, and I would have yeah. Terry Austin draw it because he he uh, could do superhero but with a light touch, you know. So he would be the perfect guy to do like comedy superheroes. I would just get him to ink some stuff because he's just he's so good. Yeah. So, but this, there's a, there's this weird shot of these three creatures, which I don't understand why they're there at all. You get a close up of Gargoax's face, and then you get a nice Doom Patrol shot in there too. It's a very pretty entry. This issue ends with the obese Gargoax is a poor hand to hand combatant. <laughs> That's how it goes out, folks. Now you get the uh, of course the advertising page in the back that has all the stuff and includes like this is great. This is like. This, this page was built for us, man. You get your Omega Man. You get my Blue Devil Annual. You get my Firestorm. Infinity Inc. for both of us. Crisis for both of us. And then Amethyst is just awesome because it's done by the same people that created Blue Devil. So, <laughs> nice group of stuff there. Now, in the comments, there's one piece that makes me go, aww. Talks about um, Firestorm stars in his own title every month and will be seen in a forthcoming graphic novel. That never came uh-huh. to be. That never came to be. Aww. There was this graphic novel called Corona that was written by Jerry Conway and was going to be drawn by Pat Broderick. Now, there's some questions about Corona. Like, a lot of people think they know what Corona became an annual. I don't think that's necessarily true. I think, because uh, doing some research, because of a listing in, um, what's that fanzine called? Amazing Heroes. I think it created some confusion. So I, I think that this stuff's never been released. Um, huh. And anyway, it's uh, everyone's really curious what it would be like. And I emailed, <laughs> I emailed, we'll just say one of the creators involved. I won't get into it. He's just like, I have no recollection of that. <laughs> so, <laughs> anyway, so, um, and then the other thing that makes you kind of go, aw, it says, the modern day Flash concludes his run in issue number 350 of his own book and is a principal player in Crisis. Mm. Yeah, in two weeks he's going to stop being a principal player in Crisis. But anyway, so that is the issue in, I wouldn't say a nutshell because we've been at this two hours now. But <laughs> all right, folks, uh, we are going to go into listener feedback. And uh, I'm going to be a little honest with you guys. Um, this is, the listener feedback is going to be a little bit in the raw. Uh, <laughs> Basically because we didn't want to prepare beforehand. Well, we just – this issue, there was so much to prepare for that we've, we've compiled most of the listener feedback, but we haven't really had a chance to study it as much. So, you know, forgive us as we sort of stumble our way through it. Now, we are going to cover this time the emails and the comments on our blogs. We're not going to get a chance to get to Facebook and Twitter really uh, just due to the nature and the amount of time we've already spent here. Yes, uh, well, the first one, I'll go first. The first one we got, we got a, a, a comment from um, Michael Bradley, and he wrote, uh, Must super excellent firewater aqua storm man dudes. I spent <laughs> today shopping for Christmas presents. Oh, you can tell how old this message is. You two with me here in spirit, but having so much fun discussing DC's finest and not-so-finest characters whose names start with D. Um, and then he gives us a bunch of notes. We're not going to read every one, but he mentions the demolition team's entry is baffling. They appeared in one storyline at most four issues from Len Wein's run on Green Lantern, which took place about a year prior. They get Who's Who entry, and then they aren't seen again until a decade later in a spinoff of Bloodlines, of all things. Bizarre. Maybe Wein's editing on the Who's Who books allowed them a pass. As always, love the show, even the criticism of the composite Superman, which picks my goofy Silver Age 11 heart. What next? Hate on Terra Man? That's a good idea. Oh, yeah. yeah that's that's, co- that's coming. <laughs> anyway, thanks for making a maddening Christmas shopping trip a bit more tolerable. Looking forward to the next episode. Thank you, Michael. 
Now, I, I, I owe you guys an apology. Some of these emails that we're going to be reading come from comments from a previous episode, episode six rather than episode seven. I literally misplaced a set of emails and found them like, oh, whoops. So we've incorporated those here into yeah, this. Yeah, that's over a little behind on some of these. Yeah, just a few of them. Though. So we got a couple nice messages from our buddy Hector Negrete, and he actually, uh, I guess, works in the printing industry and shared us some real technical knowledge. Got so, some knowledge here on it there. Yeah. It says the dot matrix pattern is still in use for applying colors on printed products nowadays. 90% of printed products are created by combining four colors, cyan, magenta, yellow, and black. Yes, the same inks used on a computer printer. The combination of these colors create almost any color. This pattern creates a rosetta, which uh, can only be seen um, pretty up close. But that pattern goes from full color to tiny dots, and as the same we used to use in the intro pages of Who's Who. The finer the dots, the better the colors look. On early paintings, the dots are pretty notorious, just the same way Roy Lichtenstein used on his paintings. Hope I didn't sound too technical, but after all, it's my job. I'm a graphic designer. Keep, the go- keep up the good work, Hector. Then he wrote us again, because I mentioned last issue about my Dr. Regulus issue, how the, the blue and the red, had, pink had sort of like separated a bit. They weren't perfectly lined up, so it looked a little 3D. And he says, well, talking about Dr. Regulus in the last Who's Who, you mentioned that the purple color seemed blurry because the color didn't match. That happened because the rosetta wasn't created correctly. And indeed, magenta at plain sight looks like pink, and cyan is easily mistaken for blue, since it's part of the blue color. He says, <laughs> I like this, sorry to be frank about it. He put frank in quotes, <laughs> but can't help it. Us too. Aww. Uh, we got an email from Justin Fredeen. Uh Gentlemen, many thanks for another fine episode. It was like Christmas came early, once again. <laughs> we're showing where we're getting these from. Um, here are my scattered thoughts on this issue. The Deep Six are one of my favorite supervillain teams. For some reason, Woo! for some reason, Pyron is in this named Curran in this issue. A mistake which, to my knowledge, has never been repeated. Didn't know that. I used to think Dr. Double X was kind of interesting until I read how Batman beat him at his own game by creating a double Batman. This seems to be a recurring plot in the Silver Age. If Batman needs to defeat Dr. Double X, Batman creates his own energy duplicate. If Batman needs to defeat the Blue Bowman, Batman constructs his own gimmicky weapons. If Batman needs to defeat Flame Master, Batman acquires his own elemental powers. Anything he could do, Batman can do better. <laughs> I completely agree with your assessment of Matt Wagner's Dr. Midnight. For my money, it's the best artwork yet in the series. Thanks again and happy holidays, Justin Friedman. Sounds like we need to start a Batman Dickery website. Yeah. <laughs> um, so then he wrote, and you got another email from him, um, where he talks about um, the original Freedom Fighters, which is weird because he's kind of ahead of us there, because um, we just talked about the Freedom Fighters. Well, we talked about Dollman last he time. We talked about Dollman, yeah. But then he, he goes into Black Condor before. Black Con- yeah, but then he goes into the whole thing here. The human bomb's entire body became explosive, insert joke here, rather than just his hands. Phantom Lady was into Phantom Out, similar to Phantom Girl. The Ray gained control over fire and electricity in addition to light. Uncle Sam's powers were supposedly increased, but he seemed pretty much the same as ever, i.e. completely awesome. (laughs) Although these new powers were featured throughout the Freedom Fighter series, they were largely ignored or forgotten after its cancellation and, to the best of my knowledge, haven't been seen in 30 years. Dollman's yeah, they're talking. They're, they're talking about because last episode I was reading Dollman. I'm like, what? He, he got mental powers. What? Right. right. <laughs> um, he mentions there Dollman's entry indicated that he acquired his telekinetic powers quote in recent years and still had them. And then he goes into even more detail about <laughs> about the Freedom Fighters. Well, I've gone on far too long about far too little, so I better close. <laughs> As always, I truly appreciate all your hard work and I look forward to the next installment. Thank you, Justin. Thank you for both have, both messages. Have you ever gotten into the Freedom Fighters? 
I read the comic when I was a kid, the seventies comic. I bought it. Yeah. I thought it was pretty cool. Um, but but I didn't really keep up with it after that. I, now I've never read the seventies comics, but you know, of course, I read their appearances in Justice League, and you know, I, I read them in All Star Squadron, and I read them in uh, they they had their own like two ongoing series or a mini series and an ongoing series, but like I just never clicked with like I click with the characters conceptually. But I never clicked with them reading comics about them. I clicked with Phantom Lady, that's for sure. Wah. <laughs> yeah, that's I, st- I stopped myself. I stopped myself. <laughs> but, yeah, um, you made the sex joke. I can't believe it. You're going to cut it out. I know. Yeah, They'll never uh, hear it. That's going to be here. Got an email from Sean Merrick, uh, or Marek. He, uh, he wrote us just telling us how much he enjoys the podcast. He really digs it. As a fan of the 80s comics, it's right up my alley. Now, he's been making... Uh, wrestlers for, uh, based on DC characters for his WWE 13 game. And he did this fun video that I just absolutely love. And it's got like the Spectre slamming people around and stuff and several, and a Red Tornado wrestler character. It's a lot of fun. I just really enjoyed it. So uh, thank you work, for sure. Truly the work of a madman. Yes. So thank you for submitting that to us. Uh, by the way, he's the producer of the Pod Crash with that Chris Gore. Uh, we got an email from McGillis. I don't know why Rob is having such trouble accepting the fruits of Shag's painstaking research. Sure, Bill Ray may have been born in 1956, but he could still write a comic book in 1951. Easily explained. Bill Ray is a time traveler. Mike Gillis. Woo! Doctor <laughs> Who fan right there. So, we heard from Siskoid. The, the two people, I think, actually there's three people. There's probably three people we heard from the most on this issue. That would be uh, Siskoid, Anthony Durso and um, Diablo Frank. Yes. We heard from all three of them quite a bit, so we're, gonna, we're just going to be reading smatterings of their messages here because they actually then get into arguments and stuff, which are funny. <laughs> Siskoid said, This issue is, has a very special place in my collection because it's the only issue I missed when it came out. I want to blame shared custody, throw it, and throw it on the daddy issues pile. It took me like four <laughs> years to find it. Consequently, it's the issue that's in best condition. Yeah, can't believe I missed out on that dolphin pick through my late teen years. Let's not get ahead of ourselves, folks. <laughs> so then he goes through and gives us literally a breakdown of every character and his thoughts on them. Um, and, and we had we had sort of posed the question if Prez ever gets an entry. And uh, he says, nope, no who's who's entry. Not in the backup pages, uh, nothing, not even the updates. Very sad. And then uh, <laughs> let's see other stuff as we go through this. He says the doghouse of solitude did not get an entry, and that's a tragedy. <laughs> He also agrees with us that the dolphin entry is one of the best entries of the whole book series. And uh, apparently he pointed out, and he's not the only one to point out, when we talked about Doom Patrol, I talked about Madame Rouge, and I said Madame Rogue. So all it really is is the order, letters are in the wrong order, and I missed it. So there you have it. So it's, it's less of a, no, yeah, it's totally a pronunciation issue. Never mind. So I got no defense on that one. Now, let's see. You can't skip over Dream Girl. <laughs> well, he's, oh, it says, I can't believe Rob drops Legion knowledge on Shag. There you go. <laughs> Must be Bizarro Day. <laughs> Weird. But I agree with Shag that the front image never did much for me. I think the pout is off model. When I think of Dream Girl, it's by Giffen or LaRock, and it's just not, that's just not her face. Compare who's who, her who's who in the Legion pick. Man, those are going to get lonely podcasts. Oh. <laughs> Compare her to her who's who in the Legion pick. Man, those are going to get lonely podcasts for Rob. <laughs> yeah, when we get to who's who in the Legion, you better be brushed up and ready to go, bro. Uh, it's going to be a very quiet podcast on my side, I think. It's going to be seven episodes long. We can't, oh, 
you got you're gonna have to you're gonna have to get it going here. I'm just gonna so. hit the record button and then hit the stop button when you're done talking, and then that's it. <laughs> I love this duo damsel thing because in the duo damsel entry, we commented on how she there's a there's a bit in there where she says you know she basically couldn't get Supergirl to fall in love with her, so she settled for Bouncing Boy. <laughs> It was, it's really brutal the way it's written. Anyway, I, wrote, I love the way that her powers were shown, um, that there are three of her, so the Triplicate Girl is visually referenced. She's lucky she wasn't renamed Settling Girl. <laughs> uh, there's an insightful bit here about Elastic Lad, which is secretly Jimmy Olsen. You and I kvetched about that quite a bit, because neither of us are really fans of Elastic Lad. You're not even a fan, really, of Jimmy Olsen much. No. And, uh... We just were bashing on it. So, But here he, he has some good points. He goes, Elastic Lad, let's talk about the real issue here. Who's who anti-supporting cast agenda? Here we have a character who's had his own book under his own real name for years. True. Instead, instead of finding him in the J's or the O's where he belongs, he's stuck in the E's as one of the many transformational identities he's held over the years. The same thing happens to Lana Lang. She's in here as Insect Queen. And Alfred Pennyworth, who's in here as The Outsider. Superpowered identities, no matter how silly or rare, trump the best-known selves. Trump their best-known selves. And if you don't have one of those crazy super IDs, you're not in it. No Commissioner Gordon, no Perry White, no Abby Kale, etc. Not until the second Who's Who update, or possibly the Who's Who files in some annuals from those years. The big surprise is that Lois Lane got a real entry, but no one else did. I never thought of it until he pointed it out that, that, that other than Lois... The only way the supporting people ever got mentioned was as their some weird superhero identity. In mm-hmm. All the years I've been reading these who's who's, I never, I never thought of them. Yep. Now he poses a question here about Elongated Man. Is he saying is this the actual first appearance of Elongated Man's new costume? I believe it is because he debuted that new costume in Legends and in in, in Justice League, and this is this Legends. Yeah. No. Yes. Yes. Didn't did he not have this costume with? Justice League Detroit? He did, but but he took he he assumed it halfway through. Well, Legends was the end of Justice League right, Detroit. Right, right. But he didn't start wearing that costume until, let me think, he didn't start wearing that outfit until like around number 250 of Justice League. Okay, so that was a little bit before Legends. Yeah, so, that's um, six months before Legends. Okay, but I mean, it's not that far away. It's it's closer to Legends yeah. than it is closer to Crisis. Um, okay, I'll give you that. So, so, yeah, I do think this is his debut. Uh, that was and apparently didn't show up for a long time. That's yep. kind of weird. Yeah. Okay. Um, next up, Anthony Durso also goes by the Toy Room. Uh, he gave us a quote-unquote E for effort and what was a lackluster issue. <laughs> he also goes through character by character. And um, he said uh, the, under Dr. Regulus, the Pat Broderick issue was the first issue of Legion of Superheroes I started buying on a regular basis. So the Who's Who entry holds special meaning to me. I had previously read The Legion when it was a shared title with Superboy, but uh, that was hit or miss. So goes in and talks about how Dolphin, Dave Stevens' artwork is amazing and would have been fun to see him work on a regular book for DC. Mm, that's and, impossible. Right. He said, Doom Patrol. All of John Byrne's Doom Patrol artwork are some of my favorite pieces in Who's Who. I would have liked to see him do a retro flashback Doom Patrol title as opposed to the approach he took when he did it eventually work on the characters. That was a disaster, but then again, DC has never really had any luck with Doom Patrol, have they? Um, he wrote here, Dream Girl, correction, Dream Girl is not the hottest female member of the Legion. Saturn Girl is. Interesting. I like how he doesn't offer any corroboration there. He just simply states it, and that's it. Well, I, I, I say that because later on, Siskoid comes back and goes, Hey, Anthony, under the Dream Girl entry, I think you made a typo there. I think you meant to say Lightning Lass. 
And then Anthony comes back. No, I was correct when I wrote Saturn Girl. <laughs> and they go back and forth about this. But, gentlemen, I'm here to tell you that both of you spelled Phantom Lady incorrectly. So it's spelled with a P. Phantom Lady is, in fact, the hottest Legionnaire, hands down. No arguments. Dave Cockrum's costume, or any costume. So I will brook no argument. Uh, what else here? Ch-ch-ch-ch. Little more love for Elastic Lad. Blah blah blah. Mentions composite Superman, of course. Oh, composite Superman! How you kill me! Then he was kind enough to go ahead and write out every single word I mispronounced. <laughs> Thanks so much, man. Glad you cut my back. But he said, on behalf of the nerdy but knowledgeable fans of the podcast, yes, Zoo Crew exists on Earth C, and the just a lot of animals on Earth C minus. So. Oh, he does mention this one thing I thought was interesting. Len Wein's comment regarding the criteria of who made who's who. I'm guessing that Angel and the Ape might not have made the original cut, contrary to the editors claiming they simply forgot, because they were humor characters. After all, Binky and Sugar and Spike didn't make it, and neither did any of the funny animal characters like Fox and Crow, with the exception of the Zoo Crew. But enough complaints were raised in their behalf that they were added at the end of the run, perhaps? Another possibility is that since they were included in a scene in Crisis and Infinite Earths, they were now legit. That's a really interesting observation, and I, I think that's true, because Sugar and Spike, you know, had their own book for 98 issues. I mean, oh, my that's, gosh. That's, a, that's longer than Aquaman's ever been able to do. Um, <laughs> and yet they didn't get listed. And I think that is because DC just really considered the humor characters sort of, you know, probably not worthy of inclusion. The space is somewhat limited, so they're not going to give a lot of space devoted to Binky or Date with Debbie or any other humor characters, which is a shame because I think, you know, they were part of DC's publishing history so yeah yeah sugar and spike especially i mean good lord 98 issues that's a hell of a run that's crazy so uh we heard from diablo frank who listed out a million bullet points for us uh one of one of the most telling ones here is the one about dr psycho dr psycho is a crazy little freakish guy who in his entry is sort of disturbing and he frank wrote dr psycho is one of my top five favorite wonder woman villains of course it is First of all, there are no good Wonder Woman villains, Frank. Second of all, this is just is a, a, a frightening look into your psyche, my friend. Um, he continued to write, See, he's a tiny trollish man who hates women while manifesting a more attractive persona to use and abuse them. Dude's a walking metaphor set against the uh, heroine defined by overtext and subversive subtext. I love villains that really mean something. So, um, <laughs> just... Cracks me up that, that yeah, that, that'd be the one Frank would support. So, <laughs> so uh, as we mentioned, Siskoid and Anthony Derso go back and forth quite a bit, uh, which is great to see the the banter and everything. Cracks me up. Maybe we should have them on the show when we do Who's Who and Legion. They could talk. They could talk. It would be yeah. fun to hear them debate. Well, clearly, I don't. My knowledge, my Legion knowledge is is a bit sketchy sometimes too. So yeah. Okay. So uh, we heard from Sean Corey, who runs the uh, Captain. Carrot blog, and he's like, yeah, he goes, yes, all the zoo crew have their own entries. Why? Because they are freaking awesome. That's why. <laughs> Wait till you get to the final issue. They have three, count them, three entries in that one. So. Well, you mentioned uh, the reasoning behind this, I would imagine, would be DC wanted to keep the characters in the public eye, since Captain Carrot, the Oz Wonderland War, was just around the corner. Issue one of that mini's cover being the date, cover date of January 1986. That's probably pretty accurate, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's see. More love for Prez. Lots to talk about the Enchantress. Oh my gosh. Uh, more Prez. <laughs> <laughs> Got an email from Martin Stein, RIP. 
um, just to break that logjam of the three of them there for a second. It says, <laughs> I think it's a toss-up between Dolphin and Phantom Lady for the most memorable entry, both by Dave Stevens. It did not escape my attention that when I was 12 years old, they both featured hints of nipples. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Now, see, if I had said that, I would have gotten in trouble. Well, no, because it's a factual statement. It doesn't matter. If I say a girl's hot, that's a factual statement too. No, that's – no, because that's you channeling a 12-year-old. No. No. No, no, no. Those Just are two record. completely different statements. Just for the record, I'm not channeling a 12-year-old. You are being – okay. <laughs> um, so back to Diablo Frank. Um, Frank um, – just screw you, man. So uh, no, 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 no. Wait a minute. Point D. I've bitched so much about the comment moderation on Rob's blog that I'm compelled to mention how bad it sucks that my comments float in limbo here, meaning Firestar fan, when they include hot links until Shag deigns to approve them after a point when it is buried by later linkless comments. You suck. <laughs> no, like, I go back to see earlier comment. Screw you. Um, what happens is Frank leaves his long comments. He includes links in it. And I have a, I have it set up on my blog so that if someone includes a bunch of links to moderate them, otherwise I'm going to get spammed like a mofo. Right. And uh, Frank does this when, oh, I don't know, I'm at work. <laughs> and so, you know, I'm busy, I don't know, working, you know, trying to make money to feed my family so I don't get a chance to approve his comments in a timely enough manner for him. <laughs> what do you drive your, your, your lazy ass from Texas over here to Florida and, you know, approve your own damn comments? <laughs> God, I probably should. I just, I'm, I'm going to wake the bear. I shouldn't do that. Yeah, I love. I do love this point, Jay. Quote: If it's not Dick Grayson, who cares? End quote. Excerpt from the Wit and Wisdom of Rob Kelly, Random House, 2021. <laughs> That's a book I want to read. I don't want to write it, but I want to read it. <laughs> it's everything. You, it's all your useless crap. Anyway, That's why I want to so, read it. <laughs> uh, like even that statement is so stupid. Yeah. I, I, Tim Drake is where it's at, my friend. Okay, fine, fine, fine. Anyway, so um, Maybe a lot of... Maybe the new Robin now that they killed off the other one. That's another discussion. We had that yes, the other day. Yes. We're not having that discussion no, again. Not. Okay. All right, there's a lot of talk about the Duke of Deception, which I just don't have the energy to read no, at this point. Because no. I just... We can't pick... there, are, there are no interesting Wonder Woman villains. I'm sorry. We can't pick on the Duke of Deception too much because then the guys are going to take it and run with it the way they did with Composite Superman. So uh, that's true. We should just be that's quiet true. about Duke of Deception. Yeah, just just wait to see where we're going with Composite mm. Superman in a minute, folks. So, all right, uh, Ciscoid. Actually, the last time Ciscoid won the Yellow Dot Award, and he was so honored. He went ahead, and you know what we said the Yellow Dot Award was, you know, it's it's for someone who goes above and beyond doing something extra special related to the Who's Who podcast or Who's Who in general. And Siskoid is a massive Who's Who fan. And so, anyway, he was awarded the Yellow Dot Award, and we said it's as tangible as a yellow dot on a piece of paper. And he took it a step further, and he has actually created <laughs> a yellow dot graphic <laughs> that we can distribute to winners, which is awesome. It is such a clever idea. So there's genuinely a yellow dot. And if you want, you could, like, post it like a badge, you know, on your website that says, you know, I was a recipient of a yellow dot. So I think it's so cool. That is the greatest idea. So awesome. <laughs> See if you can create digital steam now for the other show. But anyway. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but thank you for that. We really appreciate that. And appreciate the, we appreciate the promotion, too. Um, so. We got a message from Keith Samra, who, responding to all the other guys sniping back and forth, he just wrote, well, I still enjoyed the episode. <laughs> Short and to the point. Yep. 
So FKA Jason uh, talks about Doom Patrol and such. And um, uh, wait, hold on to this. Uh, I'd like I'd like to hear more of your thoughts on the original Hard Luck Heroes, meaning Doom Patrol. But I guess sometimes Rob's just got to cut things off. What's wrong with a six-hour podcast? <laughs> See? See, I'm telling you. Okay. So now he is uh, he's also – I did my research, I told you, through Comic Book Database. And uh, by the way, there's some other folks that thought I was talking about the Grand Comic Book Database. I am not talking about Grand Comic Book Database. I'm talking about literally the URL is comicbookdb.com. Okay. And uh, it's a bit like Wikipedia. Anyone can update it. So sometimes the information isn't any good because, you know, it's updated there. But I find it to be a wealth of information. It's also very navigatable if that's a word, and uh, I, I like using it. So um, Then Siskoi jumps in and he goes, FKA Jason makes a good point. There should be an extended version of the podcast <laughs> where each entry gets an hour and a half to itself. Each one would come with one of Frank's diatribes, of course, which is how we like our podcast, or at least our comment sections. You know, <laughs> And, of course, it's followed by a comment from Frank. <laughs> I'm going to say this. If you guys want to send me a bunch of money so I can quit all my jobs and just do nothing but record and edit hour-and-a-half-long podcasts for every character, I will be happy to do it. I cannot talk about the gang for an hour and a half. That would be pushing it. But, but then, comparatively, we can probably talk about all-star squadron for three hours so it balances out let me tell you um there's a certain listener of this show who uh well we can just say mr michael bailey who has a podcast him and scott gardner put together called um what uh tales of the jsa JSA. thank you i blanked for a second there where they're going through every appearance of the jsa since all-star comics number 57 58 whatever it was in the 70s which primarily means they're going through all-star squadron and it kills me that they're doing that podcast simply because I want to, <laughs> you know, and, uh, oh man. Yeah. So, I, w- so I would love to do a podcast about the all-star squad. And I really so like jealous of that. So anyway, um, Frank goes on as Frank is wont to do mm-hmm. about everything. And he asks, he asks, where's our new 52 earthworm? How is this guy not seeing a grim and gritty revival? It's a good point. So <laughs> there is one point he makes, um, that I wanted to get to. I don't mean, I mean to interrupt you, but he mentions this thing about point W um, Legion was the first hardcore fan entitlement property in the sense that it was a minor premise that became something greater because of the tireless devotion and input of readers. This participatory aspect lent the, as- lent the property an aura of inclusiveness that welcomed LGBT involvement, hence Element Land's ambiguous sexuality. The Legion might have retained this cultural currency if it had better extended its community to non-whites as opposed to unleashing Tyrock and fixating on ways of space like Dawnstar. The X-Men, mostly thanks to Dave Cockrum's input, usurped the Legion's progressive relevancy. I think that's an excellent point Frank made. And it was something, huh. and it was something that I, I kind of wanted to mention when we got onto it in the, the, the previous episode. But, again, the show's run so long, I, I wanted to kind of keep focused. But, like, the, the notion that um, Element Lad is, was, was gay, and, and, but then they refer, referred to him in the listing as very lonely, that's a very... 80s view of homosexuality. Right. Why, why would he be lonely? Because he's gay? What, 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 you know, like, why is he lonely? Well, that was me speculating because he hadn't been revealed to be gay. And the, the reveal of him being gay was still a good 10 years away. But it wasn't even so much a reveal of being gay that revealed his girlfriend was a guy. Right. So it's, you know, it's, 
I, I recognized it as a very 80s way of saying it. Right, right. I'm saying yeah. they were dropping those hints, and it's – I mean when you think about where the subject of LGBT rights is in, say, this country right now, the idea that it will even be something is, that's even on anyone's radar in the 23rd century – in, in, in an era where there are interspecies mingling, <laughs> it's it's just you know absurd. So it's, it's sort of sort of like yeah, the, those characters had a, were they were they were adding trying to add that relevancy to those characters at the time, and they were filtered through the perspective of that time. But you think about you know, I'm sure that there is simply no issue anymore about anybody's sexuality by the time we get to the 23rd century. I mean, people are marrying Durlins and all kinds of things. It's oh, just... Rob, Rob, you need to stop talking. I mean, you're, you're trying to make a really good point, but everyone's just groaning right now because you keep saying the 23rd century, which is classic Star Trek, the Legion's the 30th century. Oh. You're embarrassing yourself. All right. Well, my point You're made... an embarrassment to this podcast. My point is made even more than <laughs> the 30th century. <laughs> So, um, you actually get a compliment from Frank here about getting that quote on the elongated man costume. So, thank you, Frank. So, and Siskoid actually comes back and says, Earthworm would be perfect in World's Finest. After all, he was an Earth 2 Huntress villain. So, let's see. Goodness. Frank goes on to. A lot of comments. Z, E, Z, F, Z, Z. Yeah, he just, woof. What does this say? It's been so long since I heard the Galactic Guardian's dark side voice that I never realized that no other voice acting attempt has ever measured up for me. Shag did a great impersonation. I did. You did. That was a really a brilliant. It sounded just like the Frank Welker dark side. That was really well, good. Thank you very much. <laughs> um... Let's see. If you can't read 70s Legion stories and not realize puberty has struck like a tsunami. <laughs> no shrinking violet love, by the way. Oh, so uh, he did say, for the record, Who's Who is also my favorite podcast, but the only other one I listen to is Fire and Water. So you guys are only ever beating yourself. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so Frank. Siskoi continued his great uh, series of posts called, like, Who's, and then it fill in whatever character. In this case, it was Who's Dr. Zinzin. He did uh, Who's Earthworm. He did Who's Don Caballero. So he, he does these great series of posts, folks, and that's over at Siskoid's blog of geekery, which you can find at siskoid.blogspot.ca. That CA is important because he's one of these crazy Canucks. That's right. So you got to be sure to include that. So, <laughs> A. A. Uh, <laughs> we got an email from Earth to Chris. Uh, great show, guys, for a fairly lackluster issue, too. The Easy Company and Dolphin were easily the standouts here, and I'm not a huge fan of either, but hey, what's, when it's good, it's good. A few comments. Superman 2 is the Superman of Earth 1, not Earth Prime. Come on, Shag. Celsius' fake marriage to the Chief was discussed in the second Doom Patrol series, and the Who's Who updates reflecting that series. The the Superman Prime thing, I heard that today. I was re-listening to the episode, and I was like, oh! Right. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Mark Teixeira had previously drawn several of the Masters of the Universe mini-comics included with the toys at the time produced for DC. Wow, I didn't realize he was drawing stuff that far back. I don't think I knew that either. Jimmy Olsen should have had an entry under his own name, and not as Elastic Lad, as we've already covered. Um, it undermined Jimmy's importance at DCU by showcasing him in this particular outfit. Why not just put him in his, in his flame bird? He's a much cooler character there. And then well, he, you know what? Nightwing and Flamebird do get entries, do, but... Yeah. But they're not Superman and Jimmy, yeah, the I think, other the, ones, yeah. the later guys, yeah. And then he ends it with Shag, great dark side voice. It gave me chills. 
wow, I didn't realize I can really do that's great. I'm not prepared to do it again right now. I'll have to do it another. Well, it I'll do it another. It sounds episode. like it hurts your throat. It it is grout. It does hurt. Yeah, but um, you know, he mentioned something here. I wanted to go back to um about. Oh, Masters of the Universe. This is just a little tidbit, if you guys didn't know. A lot of the Masters of the Universe mini-comics were written by Gary Cohn. So the guy who created uh, Blue De- one of the co-creators of Blue Devil and uh, Amethyst. So, okay. so he, uh, he, just, he and I were talking one day, and he just commented on how, you know, that there's still a lot of popularity and love for those things. And, you know, he you know, still gets to talk, still talks to people about them. So. <laughs> um, we got another email now coming from Oren's dad, a.k.a. Sean Brock. Um, Dolphin, wow, that's just hot. <laughs> there it is. Thank you, Dra- sir. Dragon King reminds me of Cobra on GI Joe. I imagine. Yeah, totally. Him, I imagine him hissing a lot when he talk when he takes when he talks and orders his troops to kill the Joes. I mean, all stars. <laughs> <laughs> Duke, De- awesome. Duke of Deception's occupation is warmonger. How do you get that job title? Is there a master's program for that? Um, <laughs> put Elastic Lad away with the other crap entries and never speak of them again. <laughs> Man, Elastic Lad. That people, DC really pissed people off with that. Well, he said, I, I refuse to name them. Talking about the, the crap ones, never to speak of yes. again. I refuse to name them. We all know who they are. Thank you for not naming that character. Yeah. Um, Elu, just can't get enough of Sean McManus. Art digging the scion in the background. Omega Men rock. Shag, you really need to read, read that series. Well, it's, it's got to get in the queue behind my big stack of, uh, of Atari Force that I bought. <laughs> uh, he also mentions your dark side voice. Uh, once again, wow. was awesome. everyone loved your dark side voice, dude. And then he ends it with, until little Russell Burbage gets a permanent hometown and Frank can summarize his thoughts in four bullets or less. Make mine <laughs> fire and water. <laughs> That's my favorite That's, sign-off. I like that. That's really good. Uh, it says, the main duo damsel on the left. Uh, this, is, this is still Sean. Oh, this is Sean Myers. I'm sorry. Um, the main duo damsel on the left, the one in the orange suit, always reminded me of Emma Peel from the Avengers. And you know what? I can totally see what he's yeah. talking about. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. And then Sean, yeah, and Sean Brock comes right back and says, "You're absolutely right. Very Emma Peel, Diana Rigg look to her. No wonder I liked that one as no wonder I liked that one as much as one of my favorite pages of the issue of Great Catch. So that was Sean talking to Sean. Yep. <laughs> Heard from our buddy Little Russell Burbage uh, from Schenectady, New York, who uh, <laughs> says that he agrees with everyone that Easy Company, Dolphin, and Duo Damsel were the best entries, no doubt. He likes Fastback, too. Scott Shaw was just plain awesome with the exclamation point, by the way. So he also enjoyed the story about Long a Man's co- new costume. Great score. Um, this is me saying great, great score on that story, by the way. Good job. So, and... Um, his first thought – now, when the Duo Damsel picture, I asked you who you thought drew it because at first look, I thought it was a Carmen Infantino drawing, but it turned out to be someone else. He said his first thought was that it was Mike Sikowski. So she uh, she has a very all-new, all-different Diana Prince kind of vibe going on. And he asked the most important question of all, <laughs> did Do- Earth 2 Dr. Psycho wear gloves? <laughs> well, did he? I'm going to have to talk to Bob Rosakis for that. I don't know. Now, he's got some sort of misprint here because it says Little Russell Burbage from Kansas City, Kansas. Well, that's where he was at the time. Well, I mean, I I don't know. I don't think that's right. So, (laughs) anyway, I think it's – it may actually be somebody posing as him. So, Um, because we all know he's from Boulder, Colorado. That's right. Uh, We got a very nice email from D.C. Chuck Dill, a longtime foamer. Um, He wrote a post on his blog, which is the – um, uh, doa barneyoldfield.blogspot.com 
talking about... What does that mean? I don't know either. Um, okay. <laughs> talking about who's who, listening to the Who's Who podcast while he was at the gym and having a sort of like moment of clarity as he was listening to the show. Um, we're not going to read the whole thing here because it's, it's, it's long, but it's totally worth your while. So we're going to include the link to it in the show notes because it's, it's really – I found it actually very touching, what he, the nice things he said about the show and about us. And the idea of like connecting with someone over something so obscure as the, a minor point uh, involving Congo Bill and Congo Yeah, Yeah, it's, it's, it's this thing where – and I, I don't think I'm spoiling it because you just kind of said what it is, but where you're listening to somebody talk that you can't interact with. Right. Because, you know, you guys right now are listening to us and telling us when we're wrong and we don't hear you, and that's kind of how I like to keep it. But anyway, and he's he's listening, and he knew exactly what we were talking about. Right. And it's that moment where you're totally connected with someone, and yet you can't tell them you are. Right. And uh, so it was just it's – an, it's a nice story. And, of course, Rob and I like the story because it's about us. I mean, you know. Well, whatever, you know, that's just the way it works. But, uh, yeah, definitely include a link, and uh, I think it was a great entry. And um, D- I-, I call him DC, but he goes by Chuck, is that right? He goes, uh, he generally goes by DC. He's also known, oh. been known as, as Chuck, but um, DC, gotcha. I guess, is the official thing. I met him at a, at a Comic-Con. He's a very, very nice, very nice man. And he came by with his son, and it was really funny because the son had, like, a bag full of superhero toys. It was really fun. It was really cute to see, like... Like, what a great dad, you know, like, to take his son That's around awesome. and to buy him just, like, literally a bag stuffed to the gills with superhero action figures. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah, That's great. so cool. Great. Well, I really, I mean, I, the, the blog entry, I, I kind of felt like, you know, I got to know him a little. Mm-hmm. And uh, he just seemed like a really nice guy. So, although if he's a comic book nerd, I don't get why he's working out. We don't do that. So. <laughs> I'm kidding. You run like 18 miles every day. I don't know what the hell that's about. So <laughs> I just eat more chips and Taco Bell. So, all right. Uh, then we got um, heard from Professor Alan Middleton, and uh, he was kind enough to nominate us on his blog as uh, we we won first runner up for his favorite podcast of 2012. So thank you very much, uh, Professor. For the who's who is specifically. So our goal next year is to bump off whoever won uh, first place. <laughs> I don't like being a runner-up. That just means for the first loser. So, Ooh, wow. <laughs> anyway, <poor> children. <laughs> <laughs> that's right, my kids. Raw, Johnny. <laughs> I won a silver medal. Oh, really? It means you failed. You got a ninety-nine on the test. Really? <laughs> so, anyway. did you even try? So, oh, all right, folks. It is now time for dun the Yellow Dot Awards. And yes, that was plural, because we are giving out two this time for the same thing. <laughs> we were contacted literally within a couple of days of each other. I think it was even tighter than that, I thought. I thought it was only it may the have same been. day. It could have been. I don't recall. Um, no, I think there was a couple of days between. Was there? Okay. But, they, but they were completely independent, because one was emailed to us, and then the next one was actually posted on Facebook. That's right. That's right. That's Neither right. one of them knew that they were was doing this, but... There's a long history on this show of Rob and I bashing on Composite Superman <laughs> because it's an utterly ridiculous concept. It makes no sense whatsoever. And if you haven't heard the episode, you need to go back and listen to it because Composite ba- Superman has nothing to do with Batman and Superman. It's the Legion. It's just retarded. Anyway, so um, we bash on it a lot. <laughs> and our listeners love to bring it back up again, if nothing else, just to incense us. <laughs> Yeah, I, so, I definitely think it was, yeah. <laughs> so Corey Hodgson and 
Andy Capellish both did their own drawing because they're both very artistic. Both did their own drawings of a composite version of Firestorm and Aquaman together as one entity. One called it composite Aquaman, the other one called it composite Aquastorm. So uh, we got. I'm trying to say his name, Corey. We got Corey's first, and it's you know Aquaman on the on the on. I guess the character's right side, Firestorm on his left, and uh, you know, but just like the composite Superman, his skin is green, but the costumes look the same. It's a it's a it's a really fun drawing of Aquaman and Firestorm, and then Andy Capellish did one very similar, except uh, he he took a little step further and actually drew a comic book cover behind it. So instead of the DC bullet, it's got FW, and uh, it says composite. Who now? Who na- wait? Composite who now? Make way for composite Aquastorm. Well, he's parodying a world's finest cover featuring composite Superman. Oh, is he really? Yes, that's a. That's a I think that's world's finest number two eighty three, featuring okay. composite Superman. And that's what he's parodying. Okay, I didn't realize that. That's great because it does have composite Superman in the front going oop. So, but it's a really nice drawing of Aquaman and Firestorm together, and uh, how funny that 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 just all yeah, came about it was at the same time. It was amazing. So, gentlemen, you are both recipients of our Yellow Dot Award this time around. Thank you so much. We will post these drawings on our blog. Uh, I'm sorry, our, on our uh, Tumblr. Rob, what's our Tumblr site? Fireandwaterpodcast.tumblr.com. There we go. We'll have these up there. We'll have a, uh, probably, like I said, about ten entries from Who's Who up on the on there this time. And um, Rob, I mean, what's 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 next issue? Is, oh gosh, is next issue the G issue? Uh, I believe so. Yeah. <gasps> if I'm any judge of the alphabet, because we ended with the G's in this one. If, if that's the Green Lantern issue, yes. I'm very excited because that is my first Who's Who issue. Oh my! And that's the one that I sat in a hotel. The Green Lantern issue, at least, if, assuming it's the next issue. Yes, it I is. Volume nine goes from Garn Danuth to Guardians of the Galaxy. Oh, this is going to be awesome. Yeah, because, you know, the guys, you know, the people have written in have talked about their first issues or the ones that stuck with them the most and stuff. That's mine. So, because I, my, our house was being, you know, I guess I should save this for next time. Yeah, let's save it. We're, we're entering hour six of this episode. That's so. true. I'll save it for next time, folks. I'll tell you my, my origin story on Who's Who a little bit. So, that's it for now, folks. You can check out my site, firestormfan.com. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, and Tumblr, all at FirestormFan. You can find Rob at AquamanShrine.com. He's also on Facebook and Twitter at the same. And I think Pinterest, right? On P- uh, no, not, well, I am on Pinterest via Ace Kilroy, but not via the Aquaman Shrine. Oh, I was just totally kidding. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, we got we got Ace Kilroy stuff everywhere. You need okay. There, I, I won't ding you for that. But if Aquaman Shrine was on Pinterest, I was going to make you turn in your man card. Anyway, oh. so <laughs> nothing wrong with Pinterest. Anyway, that's going to do it for now, folks. Um, be sure to stop by the Tumblr. You can send us emails to Fi- fire at firewaterpodcast uh, at comcast.net. <laughs> Why do you say that again, like straight through without firewaterpodcast at comcast. There you go. Drop us emails. You can uh, hit us up on the social medias. And uh, we'll be back next month, folks. We're looking forward to it. All right. I hope you guys enjoyed it. And uh, we'll see you for the G's. That's right. Now, remember, stay through the end of the song for the stinger. Oh, I don't know if I have a stinger this time. Well, I guess we'll find no, out. No, no, not your stinger. There's a stinger in the song for who's who. Oh, well, that's, well, yes. All right. I have to another. If there's a, sometimes I like to add a stinger to these shows. Are you still talking? Just, yes, I am. Say goodbye. Goodbye. Bye.
Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Ultra Boy and Booster Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, Dittrick and Arisia and Woody Weeks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC. Who's who? Oh man, we forgot Slipknot. Show me 